welcome to episode number 36 of the DOS Game Club podcast. We have been playing The Seventh Guest. The Seventh Guest. Sorry, I already butchered it. The Seventh Guest in. Uh, when, to a good start. Yeah, when did we play it? In, in October, I think, right? October, because it was spooky month. Exactly. It's the, uh, it's the ooh for, for Halloween and everything. And it, it is kind of a spooky game. Yeah, 1993 by Trilobite. Is it just Trilobite or Trilobite Productions? Or it was just Trilobite. Just, tri- just Trilobite. Trilobite, right. Okay, so it's not a, a very well-known developer, is it? Um, they basically did The Seventh Guest, the sequel, and, well, that was about it, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they did uh, Clandestiny too, didn't they? Yes, they mm. did. Oh. Yeah, so very few. Yeah. And we'll get into why that is. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, it, it is quite novel because it's a, it's a CD-ROM game. It's one of those full mo- motion video uh, games. Yeah, it's, it's with video and CD-ROMs, which was really novel at the time of the release of this game, 1993. Uh, you've already heard some. I'm, I'm not alone. I'm Martijn, by the way. Uh, Tyne on the forums. And joining us again, very happy about this, it's Florian. <laughs> Hey, hey, I've been here last time. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it feels like you've been away for a while. So I'm... Oh, you know, yeah, I I'm was. Just, I'm just glad you're still hanging around. Aww. Adjusting to the new place, I hope. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I didn't actually play the game. So yeah. this is going to be a very interesting episode for me. Well, you know, you can't have it all. Yeah. I must say, I actually, I didn't get to play it as much as I would have liked either. It was just generally quite busy and we're running a little bit behind with these podcasts so it feels like i've been just editing podcasts all the time but uh <laughs> yeah i'll help you with the next one maybe yeah that's a, that <laughs> should be really helpful um but luckily we have two people joining who have played the game a lot and can tell us all about it uh first of all it's returning member esco hello hello super nice that you wanted to join us again well, there's a, a reason we'll get into in probably about three minutes that why I'm actually joining you guys again. But it's uh, great to be back after a bit over a year. Yeah, exactly. Should we it, should we be scared now? <laughs> is it to take over the club from the inside? <laughs> Evil laughter. Mm. <laughs> just just read our notes and and then you'll notice notice why. Oh boy, oh boy, I'm scared already. And also a completely new member joining us. It's Adam. Hello. Hey, super cool. Pseudo C on the forums, right? Yes. Yeah. Super cool. It's always nice when new members are on. It's uh, oh, thanks for having me. I was pumped. Yeah. It's it's. How did you find out about us? Uh, I was looking through my iTunes feed for podcasts about Might and Magic because I'm a Might and Magic nut, and I found your ah. Heroes of Might and Magic uh, episode. Oh, and, that's amazing. Uh, Y'all were really positive, especially about the first game, which is pretty rare to find nowadays. And then kind of went back and checked out everything else and just liked your general positive stuff and gets me to play some games I haven't played that often. So Awesome. Wow. Wow, that's really nice, Florian. Yeah, it was your idea to play the game, so maybe we should have more of your games. <laughs> well, it was mainly my, my idea to get us on iTunes, so I think that's the real, the real wow. good idea. <laughs> you're, a, you're a real achiever. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it's it's awesome that you just uh, found us out of the blue, not through some kind of uh, 
You know, I, I, I sometimes I post these links on Reddit or whatever just to get people interested. And uh, actually, it's it's really great that people are just finding out without us having to uh, spread the word. So yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm a crotchety yeah. old man, so I wouldn't have found it on any of those anyway. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's always nice. I well, listen to way yeah. too many podcasts as it is, so it's really nice to find one that I actually enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's and now you're on one, so that's even, even indeed. Cooler. Yeah, that's super nice. Right. Uh, so uh, I think we should just uh, dive into the wonderful world of the seventh guest, right? And find out all about this spooky game. We should. But she never got there. Stoff took her purse and ran away. Spent, Stoff had to run and hide. He sunk even lower. He had nothing. No life, no possessions, no dreams. Old man Stauff built a house and filled it with his toys. Six guests were invited one night. Their screams, the only noise. Blood inside the library, blood right up the hall, dripping down the attic stairs. Hey, guests, try not to fall. Nobody came out that night. Not one was ever seen. But old Matt Stout is waiting there. <laughs> Crazy, sick, and Starting off, I think we should start with you, Esco. Yes. Because I think you're the one who actually suggested that we play this game. Yeah. Uh, what what happened was is that it was rolling around last October and we were uh, playing uh, Alone in the Dark. Mm -hmm. And it was horror month. So I was thinking, okay, what's this? You know, has anybody suggested this horror game that I remember playing back in 1993 called The Seventh Guest? And nobody actually had suggested it at that point. So I threw it out on the forum and in the hopes that uh, maybe some uh, October years from now that we would actually uh, come to play it. But less than a year later okay we're playing the seventh guest okay great <laughs> yeah it's really cool because we didn't really have any of these type of games on at all so far i think 
Yeah, I think what we're going to go in with is very interesting. I think uh, at least Florian uh, will have plenty to say uh, about the FMV era, we hope, and uh, maybe even about the beginning of the CD era, mm-hmm. maybe. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't matter if you didn't play the game. <laughs> Obviously, I know everything about it. Uh, <clears throat> let me open Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> CD-ROM. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> I, I think I've heard that term before. <laughs> yeah. No, but it is it, it is sort of a novel genre. I mean, it's, it's come and gone in a way, right? I mean, it was kind of new in 1993 when this game came out. And... It seems the genre has sort of disappeared already by now, yeah. or even a few years later, actually. I, I think the, the, main, the main difference with maybe games nowadays, when you think of, okay, the full motion videos from back then, 1993s, mid-90s, probably towards the late 2000s, is that uh, that was all sort of the full motion video was easy to do. I mean, you could spend five months rendering it on a huge cluster and then put it on this optical medium to give it to the gamer, and then they could watch this high, crisp, great quality video. <laughs> but then now they're now they're more leaning towards in-engine cutscenes and where you customize your character, and then your character is actually as shown in the cutscene, so you don't have to worry about the uh, cosmetics going wrong and all the lip syncing and everything. So. So yeah. uh, it's very difficult currently to find an FMV game. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, but you, you say it was kind of easy to make these sort of games back then, relatively, compared to, you know, rendering them in real time, which was near impossible. And it's completely the opposite nowadays, where actually finding actors to play in your game seems like an impossible task in a way, and, and rendering it real time is almost trivial. So... Well, but they've, they've begun doing both at the same time. I mean, yeah, that's true. You now have real actors that are then rendered in 3D. So that's ah. that. Yeah. Isn't that like what the Death Stranding people did with the, that's based on a real actor, right? Yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's a, there's a clear difference between say uh, motion capture animation kind of thing is where you take the likeness of, of the actor and then put it in the game in, within the 3D engine and everything compared to actually having somebody act out what's going on. Of course, it, it makes it a lot more static mm. when you're, you're looking at a video. You're watching a movie. Right. Uh, you're not actually living in the environment, uh, which which was which is the uh, current games. You don't have this panning audio. You can't wander around the character while they're talking to you and look look at their boots or yeah. w- or hear their voice panning left to right or behind you, depending on that. So there's there's a lot to be said about uh, maybe modern modern technology, but there's a lot of uh, different things that then go on with. Uh, with maybe the the FMV area, which makes it very special, and there's uh, there's good examples of games that uh, didn't have like they had FMV, but they were all pre-rendered, and they didn't look anything like the actual game. Mm-hmm. But uh, the game itself looked like a, a little pixelated mess, and the FMVs were crisp and great. And uh, <laughs> or there's intros that were crisp and great, and. Uh, that was, for example, uh, in uh, uh, Wipeout that we just played, is mm-hmm. that you get these opening sequences which are pre-rendered and they look fantastic and then you get to the game itself and it's not exactly what was in the opening sequence. Yeah, yeah. And this was just a really popular 
thing in the 90s, also with the advent of the PlayStation and stuff. I really remember that these these pre-rendered cutscenes were all the rage. You all were talking about it being pretty new. That's actually the reason why Trilobite exists. Ah. Virgin Interactive was interested in the idea of this, but they were so worried it was going to be a failure that they created Trilobite so that way the creators of the game could make this game. And if it failed, they could just cut the company and not take as big of a loss. So that's why oh. Trilobite actually exists. That's interesting. So they didn't want to risk their good name in case it all didn't work out and, and have their name smeared or something. Yeah, they thought it would be great. And I, I guess there's like a tax write-off or something where if it totally failed and a subsidiary right. failed, they wouldn't have to take the full hit on it. So that's actually why Trilobite exists. Sneaky people. Oh, that's, that's super interesting. And that's, that's also why they made so few games, I guess. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's cool. So what's exactly the reason, though? I mean, is, is this the reason why you suggested it, Esco? Because of the novelty of the medium and of the, the you know, the newness? Well, a lot of these type of games are sort of when we got really our first proper PC and then we got the double speed CD-ROM and then I had played games like this uh, at my uncle's before that required CD-ROMs and and that was sort of the novelty of that, okay, we have a CD-ROM drive, we can put these games in it and we can play these big multi-CD games and and we can enjoy sort of the immersive content. And and of course, uh, maybe especially with The Seventh Guest and various this style era, they're more, say, interactive movies and interactive novels, mm-hmm. is they were the kinds is where you could sit down with the whole family uh, and then try to solve all the puzzles. Right. The same way that we did with Monkey Island mm-hmm. as well. I mean, we had the CD copy of Monkey Island with the CD audio. We can talk about the novelty of the CD-ROM medium as well soon. But then this was just the thing is, is that this era of FMV gaming was really when I started playing games outside of consoles. Right. Yeah, that's nice. I, you mentioned that before that you, you, I think also other adventure games you played with the whole family around the computer, right? Yeah, we played everything from like King's Quest 5, 6, 7, 8, 7th uh, Guest, obviously the sequel, The 11th Hour, Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2, lots of the LucasArts games and various other games that I that I still have sitting around. And then there's a good examples uh, later on in that what exactly the CD-ROM did to gaming and, and then what, what it actually happened and, and why people sort of started moving to it because there was an actual advantage always to have the CD-ROM over the, the old version. Of course, there's a very classic game that I uh, that I play and I speedrun, which is Loom, mm-hmm. where the CD-ROM version is absolute garbage <laughs> compared to the floppy version. But yeah. that's because that's because they made uh, the choice of using uh, the CD-ROM's capacity to put in voices right. rather than keep the original vibe of the game. Yeah, Loom is a bit of an odd example because. Mo- what's I feel these these CD-ROM games? What they're really about is is adding more content. Be- but but in the in the specific case of Loom, they actually cut content, right? I mean, yes, they 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 remove the music from a from a game, which is based completely on the music. And the funny thing is, is of course Loom and and uh, the Seventh Guest are connected because they have uh, the same person who did the music. Oh, who's that? Uh, that's George Sanger, the, also known as the uh, the Fat Man. Huh. That's it. Uh, we'll definitely dive into this stuff more later. But yeah, that's really interesting. So you mentioned that you played the game right when it came out in '93, right? 
Yeah, I think I played it at my uncle's place in 93. Then later we picked it up as uh, one of these white label virgin boxes, uh, like 94, late 94 or, or early 95. Probably more like late 94 because I have a lot of these games from uh, early 95, late 94. So it was probably something of the equivalent of five euros in current money. <laughs> yeah. But it was one of the games I played and I've replayed it about every 10 years or so. So I went through it very quickly again uh, this time as well. And I remember it very, very keenly because at that time I had a subscription to a gaming magazine and many times the, the one page of hints was full of the solutions to the seventh guest puzzles because <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very different time also because you couldn't just go out and, and find hints on the internet or whatever. So when you got stuck, you were just stuck. Yeah. Uh, I guess one way to extend the game time you can spend with the game, but yeah, and and there there you do remember that okay, some of the puzzles were absolutely trivial. It's sort of like okay, this goes this and this and this, and then I'm done. It's sort of like well, this uh, for example, I think it's the second last puzzle in the game, mm-hmm. which uh, I think I first try when we got there. We first tried it within the, the basically the time that it takes to to click on the, the little items, and it's sort of like okay, that was done, that was easy, yeah. Sort of like, why is this at this point of the game when I spent 45 minutes doing this other puzzle? (laughs) Well, but I guess sometimes it's hard to judge what will be easy for most of the players. And even then, there may be outliers. Like maybe this is something that's really easy for you to find out. And it's it's much harder for the average gamer. I think that especially puzzle games and adventure games are really, really hard to balance. Mm. Yeah, well, we we touched on the monkey wrench back in uh, when we were talking about Monkey Island. And okay, yeah, yeah. But some 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 things don't translate. <laughs> <laughs> so so Adam, did you also play the game when it came out back in '93? No, I probably got it about uh, four or five years after that. Uh, Christmas morning, I got right. the seventh guest, the eleventh hour, and both strategy guides. Oh, um, oh, with the guides already. I did, yeah. My mom did all the research and went and found all the stuff and picked it up so that way I wouldn't be completely stuck, even though I tried not to use the guides all that often. Ooh, um, that's difficult, though, yeah. if you have them. And yeah. I always find that once you look up one once, thing, yeah. then, then you will then it's ever just, yeah. always go back Flood, and looking stuff yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> the floodgates are open. You just go the least amount of friction already. Okay, go to the guide. It's, yeah... Oh, well. Well, I mean, I admit now, I, I play the game quite a bit still. Um, there's a couple puzzles that I don't even try to solve. I just look up the solutions and get through them, because <laughs> I'm not going to sit there for three hours doing a chess puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, but that was kind of cool. a cool gift, though. I mean, to get both the games at in one go, that's amazing. Yeah, I played it at a friend's house, and I fell in love with it. Uh, so that was pretty much my big Christmas thing that year. Awesome. Wow. So, so did you did you play them in sequence? I guess you did. So, yeah, yeah. I, I played the seventh guest nonstop, uh, and honestly, I didn't beat the eleventh hour until about a year ago. Is um, huh? I remember getting into it and realizing that uh, it's a much harder game, and I didn't really understand the story at all. Mm. So, I until about a year ago, I never even got all the way through it. Right. Even with the guidebook, uh, I think it, the story just didn't catch me as well as a kid. Um, now as an adult, I love it. Um, I know I'm on the minority of that, but as a kid, the story just never really got a hold of me the way the seventh guest did. There wasn't as much like weird, creepy stuff in it. Right. Yeah. I I don't know what the story of the eleventh hour is actually. So I'm I'm sure we'll we'll dive into that stuff uh, a little later on. It's incredibly dark. <laughs> okay. 
Well, the, what I read about the story of the seventh guest was already a little bit creepy. I mean, it's all with, with people, children dying or something. It's already mm-hmm. pretty gruesome. So, yeah, I don't know. Darker than that is, seems... It is. It's much oh. darker. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, that's cool, though. And um, did you keep playing it all these years? I mean, you you, sh- you said you got it, like, end end of the 90s but you only beat the 11th hour last year so uh, did you keep revisiting it or i think there was there was about a 10 year gap where i didn't play it and then um probably about four or five years ago i picked up the seventh guest again and i started beating it about once a year and then i i continued that into the 11th hour so i've i've finished the 11th hour a couple times now thanks to that right awesome okay that's cool and was the game like you remembered it back when you picked up the seventh guest again? Was it like, oh yeah, I'm back home, or or did it surprise you in a way? Like, oh, was this how it was like? For me, it was better. It was much better. Huh. Um, I'm, back then, I wasn't much of a horror fan. You could probably say this game is the reason I'm a horror fan now. Hmm. And now it's like going back to one of those old '80s horror films where there was a <laughs> lot of limitations and restrictions, yeah. so they couldn't do all the really cool stuff. They had to work with what they had. And the seventh guest to me feels real. It feels. You know, it's honestly made. They they tried to tell the best story they could, and I think they did a pretty decent job with it. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Especially since they they didn't have a lot of experience with this sort of thing. I mean, nobody had. Yeah, zero experience. This was all just tests. Right. <laughs> that's that's a cool time though. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we why we look at these old games is because it's just interesting what people were trying, and it, sometimes it all seems a bit. Well, stabilized now that, you know, uh, people already know what they're going to make when they start on a new game. But uh, this was very different back in the day. Oh, but every once in a while you have, I mean, I think people are still trying out new stuff. Sure. But there's just so much stuff being made that you don't get to know the stuff that's that's not really good. Yeah, so. that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's probably the reason why I use the guide nowadays. Like back when I got these games, this was it. This is all I had with, you know, a couple other games. So sitting down and working on a chess puzzle for three hours, no big mm-hmm. deal. Well, now I've got an hour to play while my kids are sleeping. So <laughs> I better get through this chess puzzle so I get to the next part. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's crazy how much time kids are willing to put into things without even making much progress. It's just, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we've said that many times before, right? So you start playing the same level of... of <laughs> Uh, Super Mario <laughs> dying again each at time. The same point. You manage, yeah, you yeah. go to level two next day <laughs> again. Repeat. <laughs> you do that for a year. Yes, and, and you don't mind. You don't mind because you don't really notice. Right? Yeah, it's so. weird. It's weird. <laughs> so I'm guessing you didn't play the game back in the day, Florian. Uh, well, let me think. I don't think I did. No. <laughs> no. Did you even have a CD-ROM? I think it took a while. Look before you got. I, when I got my 286, I also got a CD drive just a few months later. Huh. But yeah, I don't think this would have run on a 286. No, or a th- 386. <laughs> and I, I, had a, I had a Hercules uh, monochrome mm. yeah. video card, so that wouldn't have made it much better. So No, 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 no. I did, don't think I would have been able to play it. No, exactly. No, and by the time you got a more modern machine, this game was already forgotten almost. Well, w- w- when I got... My first machine, it was already forgotten, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I must say, I haven't really played it myself either. And I I don't know. I really don't know why. Maybe it's because uh, I was a little bit too young. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not completely sure because I was like 10 years old when this game came out. So I'm not completely sure if that's appropriate. But 
Yeah. Also, I never really was a, a horror fan, although maybe not having played it, that's the reason why I'm not one, because maybe I could have been one if I had played this, but... It would have turned you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I guess it may be, but I don't know. I mean, I was playing lots of adventure games, and I was really into that stuff. And I did get a CD-ROM drive in 1993, because um, the last episode we were talking about Sid Meier's Pirates, and uh, the game I got with the CD drive was uh, Pirates Gold which I think was also released at the time, which is the CD-ROM remake of Pirates. Um, so I played loads of that, but this game, I don't know. I just didn't have it, didn't play it, just wasn't on my radar at all. So At the time, it was slightly more expensive than your average other CD game. Right. Because this was the first ever title that came out on two CDs. Exactly. And CDs were not cheap. We'll probably get into it later but uh, about the reviews, but the list price, according to one of the magazine scans that's on the forums, was, I think it was $100 what? for the game. Oh. That's insane. Yeah. So, wow. That's probably one of the reasons, because I, I was playing a lot of games on floppy disks and on, you know, pirated copies, stuff like that, but... Yeah, copying this game was not really feasible back in the day, was it? No, you just you just couldn't do it. I mean, you you the the capacity required to pirate this game was was too much and then by the time CD burners became more universal, then the era of this game as we've said before was just gone. Yeah. Exactly. And and this game, basically, the era of this game was gone by the time the sequel came out in 95. <laughs> so. A very short-lived genre. <laughs> anyway, I, I just checked. Um, $100 in 1993 money would be 180 euros today. That's yeah. about the same price as a Switch Lite, right? Yeah, so. that's insane. You can buy like three games for that. That's, uh, oh well. It is novel. That's cool. I mean, they're doing something new. I guess that involves some costs, maybe. I don't know. But, yeah. I guess that's the reason why this game passed me by. I don't know. I didn't have $100 back in 93, that's for sure. Uh, and, yeah, acquiring it through other means was also not really possible. So, yeah. <laughs> it was not in the shoebox of your uncle. No. No, definitely not. No. It's, uh... Oh, well. Um... Adam already mentioned this a little bit, but I think a, a good start for a game like this is to explain the the setting and the, the story a little bit, because it introduces some of the characters and, and, you know, what's going on. Because it's, when you boil it down, it really is a story game, isn't it? I mean, it's a sequence of puzzles, but it's... It's about telling these this this horror story, right? Absolutely. Uh, Esco, you wrote the notes. Do you want to say it or do you want me to tell it? You, you go ahead. Okay, so the seventh guest is based around a man named Henry Stauff, who was a drifter. And what ended up pretty much happening is he would end up killing a woman and taking her purse to buy a meal. Mm -hmm. After doing this, something snaps in him and he starts having these visions, these dreams of toys and puzzles. And he takes whatever little he has and he ends up making one of these dolls. He ends up giving that to a bartender, which gives him a place to stay and do these things because the bartender thinks his daughter would love it. And he ends up making more puzzles and more dolls. And these visions keep coming and coming. And there's actually a novel of the book. And what the writer says at that point is he's actually got these voices. It's kind of like a Faustian deal. He sold his soul. Right. And he starts making these dolls. And these dolls, everybody in the town wants one. 
But once these kids start getting these dolls, they start dying. And people believe it's a, I think they call it a virus mm. uh, that the people believe it is. And it starts killing these kids. Uh, in order to escape this, he kind of goes into seclusion and builds this mansion uh, to his own whims and then disappears into it. Nobody ever hears from Stauff again. Right. That is until one day he sends out invitations to six guests with a deal pretty much. You show up, you stay. If you're the last person living in this house, you will have your greatest dream granted. So these six guests appear all from different areas. Um, you've got Martine Burden, who is a former singer. Uh, Edward and Eleanor Knox, who are in financial trouble, as you find out, and they're very dissatisfied in their marriage. Julia Hine, who is an aging actress. Um, she works at a bank now and just longs for her youth. Brian Dutton, who uh, is very money-hungry, and you get the idea that he'd do anything to get some money. And Hamilton Temple, who's a stage magician who truly wants real magic. He's sick of the tricks. Mm. Um, and they all come in, and they find out that Stauff has set up games and all these different things. And there's one thing that they have to do. And what he finds out is that another, a young boy has made his way into the mansion, and he's the seventh guest. And Stauff wants this young boy to be able to pretty much continue his life in perpetuity and live forever uh and the guests have to try to get this boy whose name is tad to stealth and you get to watch these things kind of happen through anachronistic videos uh of seeing these different things which is really interesting because you'll see someone die at one point but then later on they'll still be in there because you realize this house is reliving these events so you're not actually seeing what happened at that moment you're seeing a moment in time and these all these people are trapped in this house Right. It's like ghosts watching visions of ghosts or something. Yeah. It's like a twisted Willy Wonka kind of story <laughs> with a Yeah. Yeah. So this boy is the seventh guest. Like what this is where the title of the game comes from. Yes. Yeah, he wasn't supposed to be there. If you play through the game, you actually find out more about the the id, so the the whoever the player character is in respect to the rest, rest of them. I'm not sure. Should we spoil it already? I think um, it's been 26 years now. <laughs> I think we can. Actually, yeah. people listening to podcasts about games of that era, they should expect a spoiler or two. <laughs> okay. Uh, so in the end, it actually turns out is that the person that you are playing that's going through solving these puzzles, watching these cutscenes, is that you're Tad. Ah. So you are the seventh guest and, and you're you're re-going through that and then trying to trying to relive. I, I, that's how I remember the end being. Yeah. Uh, Adam can fix, fi er, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's that sort of is that you're going through and, and reliving it. And, and of course, Tad goes in based on a dare from from the other boys. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like, how did Tad actually get into the house? Because he he wasn't invited by uh, Henry Stauff, was he? No, but he, he, I think he was. Uh, they were with the boys, and they were making a dare that you nobody goes into the into his house. And of course, Stauff is is an anagram for Faust as well. Uh, so, yeah. eh, obvious, <laughs> but yes, especially with the puzzle of the eleventh hour that makes you solve that. <laughs> That's true, but. Uh, <laughs> By that time, everybody would know anyway. But uh, <laughs> it's two years. Come on. But then, uh, 
this this is how sort of the uh, everything happens in there is that you go in and then you figure out what's happened to all the other six guests and and then you figure out what happens to yourself and how it actually ended. So it's sort of like just reliving through that thing. And then you also get to know more of the history and everything behind, like the dolls are actually, I think, capturing the souls of the children. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, the children are dying, but they're being captured in the dolls. And there's a whole doll house and a doll area that's separate once you get towards, I think, the last quarter of the game. Right. And, and then that becomes more important than in the 11th hour, where... Things are sort of mulled over and you re-enter the mansion to to find out more background and more story and everything about it. Oh, the 11th hour is also inside the mansion. Yes. Huh. Yeah, it's new characters in the mansion, uh, but that's where it gets really, really dark. Hmm. Okay. And it's it's a way, way to save on rendering costs when, yes. hey, it's, yeah. just, it's just the same 3D models. Uh. <laughs> just smash that vase and turn it sideways. It's good. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, and uh, we were talking about the ending real quick. The this the really dark part about the ending is yeah you are reliving these events as ego as Tad. The implication also though is that ever since this happened, and you know by the time this game came out, you could assume it happened probably around the fifties or so. That ego has been reliving these events over and over and over, unable to change them. So he's actually watching himself pretty much be taken in by Stauff over and over and over again. But in this last playthrough, so when you play it, something has changed where he's able to break the cycle. So he's been stuck, in essence, in purgatory for decades. Yeah. Okay, but it's cool that you, as the player, are able to break the chain or break the, the cycle. So... That's that's kind of cool. I mean, that's that seems like a good thing. A lot of this story doesn't seem particularly positive or uh, uplifting. <laughs> it's very very dark, and and it's yeah. it's it's not really you know horror as you'd consider maybe the genre now is is that it's not scary jump scare everywhere, but it's just general psychological mm-hmm. horror and. Uh, situational horror and and yeah. people die kind of horror ra- rather than the uh, around the corner there's another zombie kind of thing from resident evil yeah or even the alone in the dark is is that yet another gargoyle and uh, will come through the window and and eat you yeah this game isn't as lighthearted maybe not it doesn't really have that comedic effects or or whatever this this all seems pretty serious stuff is is there nothing lighthearted about it i mean does does the game take itself that serious? I guess it does. I think there's a couple there's a couple gags here and there. Um, but it's all like poltergeist kind of happenings and things like that. So they really stick to the haunted house theme. Right. And they never really get away from it at any point. Hmm. I I think the only thing really lighthearted is when stuff keeps taunting you. Yeah. And taunting yeah. you and taunting you and sort of like, you didn't get that right. Did you? It's it's there's 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 a lot of little little itty bitty stuff that's really really sort of fun and, and and keeps it going until it's the seventeenth time that you've heard that is sort of like, yeah, I know, I got it wrong. I'm going to restart this puzzle again. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like it's a bit like Portal in that sense, isn't it? Like this sequence of puzzles with a a voice. constantly commenting on your failures and and although that game is definitely really funny but the the uh the every once in a while you the voice actually in the puzzles gives you a sort of a hint uh, or Mm. you have this this ego talking about the puzzle itself and giving you a hint is that hey you were supposed to do this right 
Ah, uh, yes, and then you can go through it. I mean, you could you could technically with most of these puzzles, you could press the pause button, stare at it for long enough, and and work it on on paper, and then actually solve it. But then mm-hmm. it's not exactly the same with all with the whole thing. But even if you solve a very long puzzle, it, it, you'll still get the taunts in it, and and you'll still spend a lot of time watching cutscenes if you play the DOS version, of course. What do you mean? Is that different in other versions? Well, they did a 25th anniversary release this year, and that allows you to skip all the cutscenes. Oh. But you have to deal with the world's worst mouse controls. <laughs> okay. I played it on the classic controls. I'm not sure. Oh, I didn't even realize that was an option. <laughs> I, I'm not exactly sure how, how that, uh, because it felt it felt normal normal to me. But it essentially, basically, because everything is, is an F and V, Mm-hmm. I mean, even the little animations of going downstairs is an F and B. Yeah. Then it just basically takes that video and then just plays it at like four times the speed, five times the speed, or oh, something right. else. So you just skip. You can skip all the cutscenes, and and you and it physic it physically actually plays it fast. It's not actually uh, they don't take the the game code and then skip the cutscene, but they actually make it play fast, yeah. so that it gets to the end point, and then at the end point, it uh, the uh, the game script continues. Right, that was probably not possible, I think, on the hardware uh, at the time. I mean, I think your computer was pretty much taxed just playing the the videos at normal speed especially with the slow cd drives at the time yeah i don't i don't think and i think some of the era games would let you skip cutscenes and like press escape kind of kind of thing and then you wouldn't see it yeah but of course in in this game which which is story based you don't really want to skip any cutscenes yeah but then also it does make it artificially long yeah mm-hmm. yeah well and they wanted you to look at all the hard work like this had never been done before so they're like look at how smooth it is going up these stairs up the attic and all these kind of <laughs> different things it was, it was a tech demo in many ways yeah, but also if you just spend, you know, three, four hundred dollars on a on a CD ROM with this game, why would you want to skip any of it? I mean, this this is the game. Looking at this stuff, right? I mean, these kind of graphics were completely impossible just a few years before. So, I I guess it's all about marveling in the the visual presentation. That's yeah, that's almost the point. Just watching these videos is was cool in itself. Nowadays, it's seen of sort of boring, right? When a, when a game has an unskippable uh, cutscene, people go, ah, I don't want this. But I think at the time, people were really psyched just to see this stuff on their screens. Yeah, this is this is not like nothing you've ever seen before if you, if you actually lived and played in this era. Yeah, definitely. Maybe we should talk a little bit just about this FMV stuff right now, because that's really what the game is all about. Just to be cl- uh, uh, clear, FMV stands for full motion video, right? Correct. So, I mean, nowadays you don't even think about it, but at the time, that was really something because I think up until that point, well, there were definitely things moving on your screen, but they were also all, always just tiny bits of a, yeah, just small sprites, small things animating. Not not the whole screen, not every pixel moving every frame. So this was a completely novel thing, right? It's so novel that Virgin really didn't want to do anything with it. Exactly. That's why the whole trilobite thing, like you mentioned. It, it, was, it was also kind of a tactical achievement. I yeah. mean, um, before that, it was impossible to push all the pixels of a video out to the to the graphics card in one frame. Yeah. So and 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 then you you had 
the additional problem that you didn't have the storage to store your video. Mm-hmm. Because, um, I mean, you, you could always compress more than people probably did back then for for um, live or for full motion video, but um, you didn't have the processing power to actually uncompress it in real time. Exactly. So exactly. I mean, nowadays you would just store it as a you know MPEG four or whatever codec. But even if that stuff back in the day had been around, which which it wasn't. The computers back then couldn't actually decode that stuff fast enough. So exactly. it would have been pointless anyway. And even if you could decode it in real time, that still didn't mean you could push out all the decoded pixels to the graphics card. Yeah. So And, and nowadays with, with a modern codec, you wouldn't need nearly two CDs to store all the video in it. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you if you get this. I think this game is still available on, on things like GOG or Steam or... Is it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, well, be, you can buy the twenty fifth anniversary edition of of the seventh guest, and then uh, on Steam and GOG, you get the classic version on top of that, and that will run, of course, in in Scum VM. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I I can't recommend DOSBox because I actually jumped through the hoops to to get it working on DOSBox uh, from the uh, the GOG uh, version, mm. and it was not easy. <laughs> no, it's I, I tried the same. It's it's a little bit difficult because of of um, the CD audio tracks, right? Yeah, well, I I made a custom uh, a Q file then with the CD audio tracks, and then uh, of course back in the days it was on two CDs. So if you just got the two images and then you switched in between them, that would be fine. But there's also graphical glitches and mm. and scaling problems that that you have. So you have to figure out what exact cycles you need to run it at. So it, it's ultimately one of these games is you stick it in Scum VM and then you're happy. Yeah, that's because it runs much better. Scum VM is really great. It's amazing how many games. Uh, supported nowadays. Eleventh uh, hour is not supported yet. Oh, that's too bad. But you can you can play you can, but you can buy that and play that as well off off both GOG and Steam. Right, right. Um, Esco, I'm looking at the notes document here, and I'm I see you wrote down the game is uh, genre wise similar to something like Mist, maybe, which is from the same year, isn't it? It's the same year, except it's not. Mm. This was. Uh, because uh, Mist was not released until 1994 for the PC. Ah, it was a Mac game at, at first. Yeah, I remember Mist being very Mac, mm. and that was the thing that that sort of brought about uh, the the sort of the Mac uh, Mac CD adoption was people playing Mist and people wanted to see Mist and <laughs> and all that and and uh, uh, isn't that one of your favorite games, <laughs> Martin? <laughs> Well, I, I I really do like Mist, and I think Mist was huge at the time, and I think it still is in a way. Uh, yeah, it's and it's and it's very much the similar. You you run around these three D uh, landscapes uh, in sort of chunks because you can't actually run around, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, then you see these little cutscenes every once in a while with something happening with the full motion video. It was a CD game as well. Yeah, yeah. And and then you have these little acted out scenes. Well, technically there was only really three actors in the whole game, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's still it still brought about the same thing. It was it was puzzle, it was it was full motion video, it was it was all all the same things that the seventh guest did, but the seventh guest did it first on PC and it also did it in multiple CDs. Yeah. <laughs> And I think also maybe slightly more technically impressive because Mist 
still feels a lot like you're watching a slideshow. And I didn't really have that feeling with Seventh Guest at all. Uh, it feels more, I don't know, there's more stuff going on for some reason. Things are moving, things are, I don't know, it's, uh, it, it felt less like just watching a bunch of photos. Well, with, with Mist, they made this weird choice to make the PC version a Windows 3.1 game, which meant that the graphics capabilities were even lower than for the DOS version. Mm. Well, because all the, dra- the drawing stuff in Windows 3.1 was really horribly slow. Yeah. So I think there would have been no way for them in 1993 to actually play full motion video in Win 3.1. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I do, do remember... Some some of the bits is that during that era that it was better Mist was better on Mac, hmm, right? I might be wrong, but uh, I mean uh, my memory doesn't go back twenty six years very easily. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it, I think Mac the Mac version was just superior because of the the way that the hardware and the operating system worked together. And, and Mist was a little bit more interactive than the Seventh Guest, if I remember. I don't. I haven't played Mist all that much, but the seventh guest, there is no interacting with anything other than the screen you're on. Mist, you could interact with something in one place and have it affect somewhere else. Am I correct in that? Right. Yeah, it does. It is true that that you know, doing thing, uh, doing a thing in one place opens a door in another, or right. You know, it's it's very. There's this book. I think you travel constantly back and forth through a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but still, I don't know. It it. I I was quite impressed with the seventh guest and how things were moving all the time. Like it, it, it didn't feel so static uh, while mist sometimes does kind of feel that way to me, but. Well, I think, um, I think with miss or with the seventh guest, what you're seeing there too, is wherever you are in the seventh guest, that's the only place that matters to the game. Yeah. So they could do a little bit more of that. Whereas in miss, they had a little bit more to kind of balance. So they had, they, they got rid of some of that interactivity or some of that realism for the interactivity and the seventh guest got rid of your interactivity for the realism. Hmm. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, there's also some other games you wrote down Esco. Uh, Under a Killing Moon, for example, which is a year later? Yeah, Under a Killing Moon, which was released in 1994 on four CDs. Yikes. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, that's actually a classic series that it's mm. still getting releases. I think there's one coming out next year. Uh-huh. Uh, and, it, uh, and it had a recent Kickstarter that was like a few years back called the Tesla Effect. Uh, that was... It's all on the same. So you, but uh, the the difference was is that uh, the game actually happened in sort of this small partial screen. Mm. So it was maybe a third of the screen was actually where the gameplay was, and the rest of it was where your dialogue options show up, where your inventory is. Of course, the difference is is that Under a Killing Moon was more of a real point and click adventure. Yeah. Uh, uh, but Under a Killing Moon had a fully explorable environment. Okay. So where Seventh Guest and Mist, you're on rails under a Killing Moon. You actually have you have to walk around, and you can run into walls, right? And you can duck, which was actually at one point of the game you can't complete it if you don't know how to duck. <laughs> so I remember <laughs> which is that quite unique for an adventure game, really. This kind yeah, of yeah, uh, but yeah. but and I think uh, the Fat Man made the under uh, music for Under a Killing Moon as well. But oh, wow. uh, I might be really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> It's the third game in the Tex Murphy series, right? Yes. I, uh, I played the first one only, I think. The, the first Tex Murphy adventure game. Was it Martian Me- Memorandum? No, that's Mean Streets. That Mean Streets. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which is really cool because it has this completely weird PC speaker sound, which tries to emulate digital audio by playing it really fast. Yeah. So it becomes this sort of screeching, weird noise. It's it's kind of cool. But yeah. yeah, that's the only Tex Murphy game I played. So And of course, uh, there's... Uh from Under Killing Moon onwards, they went full FMV. So there's oh. uh, three games in around the DOS era. The, the third one actually came out on either six CDs or a DVD. Wow. So that was rare at the time. I didn't even have a DVD drive. I still have the game. Awesome. <laughs> I didn't even have the, have the DVD drive. So I had the six CD version. But it was all the same. But it was, it was a lot in a smaller box. So you didn't have to do the full resolution video because mm. all you're doing is... A, is giving these actors a little little small box, and and the videos is only played in the small box. But right, but it, it was also a, an interesting game, isn't that? It supported up to four, obviously CD-ROM drives. Yeah. Oh wow. So if you yeah. actually had a CD changer, you could a- assign the letters in the configuration so that CD one is in drive D, then CD two is in E, and so on. So you never had to switch CDs when you actually played through it. Awesome. That's really cool. Didn't Gabriel Knight also have a sort of an FMV game, or Gabriel Knight Two is an FMV game, but that's that's a bit later. I think isn't that ninety uh, five around mm-hmm. the same time as Phantasmagoria, which is sort of the next on our note note list here, which mm-hmm. is of course a, a horror FMV game, which came out on seven CDs. Yeah, oh boy, that's really Moore's law for game sizes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember this game coming out on seven CDs and. It was just insane. The same process is still going on, right? So we then we had games on, on DVD, then Blu-ray. And for the last few years, we had games come out on at least two Blu-ray discs. Uh-huh. Uh, if, if you still buy them in a box, I mean, which yeah. mm-hmm. people like me do, but the general public maybe doesn't do anymore. Yeah, but then you get like 100 gigabyte downloads. So <laughs> right, that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, eh. Then, then you hope you don't live in Australia because the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, on a limited connection yeah. is. Oh, I used my monthly quota to download this game. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> well, you, you can have that in Germany as well. Mm. Like my parents have have four G or five G only at their uh, at their house. So oh boy, yeah, yeah. But but Phantasmagoria is is sort was sort of like a later era, more horror-y game. It was Windows mm. ninety five only, I think, mm. at the time. So uh, uh, we're not we're not ever going to play it on on uh, the DOS Game Club, obviously. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, is it really though? And it's a, it it's really? actually a game. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 more of a horror horror game. I mean, yeah, you, you get blood you get gore to, violence. You get to kill the protagonist in it in many gruesome ways. Yeah, <laughs> a very Sierra as well, which of course it was a Sierra title. Mm. Yeah, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, from from that era, of course, uh, uh, Gabriel Knight Two is is one of my other fav- favorite games. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what year it was from, but it it's so that was also 1995. Right, but it, it's on the same engine uh, that actually worked under DOS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so th- that's a that's a good one to pick up maybe s- sometime down the line. But it's very much FMV story driven games with various puzzles and their later improvements come along and and uh of course 11th hour was uh, which we'll touch on later was the first one that had full screen 640 by 480 uh color video nice yeah yeah this was a bit of a turning moment for adventure games i feel uh because before the cd-rom it was 
really focused on uh, getting away from the text parser and into the point and click stuff and and very much having your character move around, explore the room, take items, stuff like that. And then with the CD-ROM, it became, yeah, more like the puzzles were more shoved into your face. Like, oh, here's a puzzle, do it. And then click here for the next puzzle. Uh, it, Yeah. The People often say that, that uh, first-person shooters killed the adventure game, but I... I think maybe also the FMV game sort of killed it. <laughs> because, yeah, I, de- I don't know where people, where you could go after this stuff. Well, did, did you actually have to go anywhere? I mean, there are point-and-click adventures coming out today, and people still love them. So Yeah, okay, that's true. But it's like a, a, a renaissance or something. It's like a, a resurrection of the genre. I, I think it was dead for like 10 years or something. Oh, maybe. So, yeah. Like the 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 Sierra Wajidai gap of of early two thousands. I don't think any adventure games came out during that time. But when did they release the last Monkey Island games? Yeah, two thousand. Oh yeah, from yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, the tale the tale series would would be the um, yeah. I think the the point where Telltale resurrected a lot of the old uh, the Sam and Max IP. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then they they resurrected uh, the Monkey Island IP. So that was sort of where it came back. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting time. It's like a a really different approach to games than what we we are used to now. You also wrote down The Witness, which... Well, I did. Isn't an FMV... Oh, okay. That's not an FMV game at all, though. No, it's not FMV. No, but um, I felt like the um, it's on the same spectrum. Maybe not because mm. it's FMV, but because the kind of way the way that, that puzzles are presented. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've only seen a few video videos on YouTube about um, The Seventh Guest, but I felt it was not, not too different, right? No. No, no, no. Definitely. And people have compared The Witness to Mist also, definitely. Oh, yeah. So. It also looks a lot like... I mean, they, they even look alike, I feel. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think The Witness is, is very close, probably, to this era-style games, except the puzzles are maybe uh, not meant for 13-year-olds. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Um, the puzzles in, in, in The Witness, they are, they are not really... I mean, they are hard, but you can you can understand them. I think even if you're 13 years old, I mean, the whole game is is, is is built around the concept of teaching you how to solve them, right? So yeah, it's more about logic and and being able to deduct them from the system that's provided to you. While I think with the seventh guest and also missed to an extent, it's more trying to figure out what the authors had in mind, isn't it? Yeah. I think that I think about 90% of the puzzles in the seventh guest you can you figure it out almost right away or you're given a hint on what you're supposed to do and uh the rest of them are the kind is where you have to sort of think on that I what am I trying to do and how do I get to where I can do that. Yeah. Yeah, Florian, I see you also wrote down Bandersnatch, but I'm not is that that's, What's that? That's like the Netflix thing, right? Yeah, that's that's like an interactive movie where you are given choices, so you can basically um, find your own way uh, or path through the story and um, decide the protagonist's uh, um, fate, more or less. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the exact opposite um, range of the spectrum of games we're discussing, because there are literally no puzzles in this game, and it's mm. all 
FMV, while in other games like The Seventh Guest, I kind of feel FMV is just a, a way to to um, transport maybe what they were trying to do with the game, mm. while other games like The Witness have none of it, but it's still the same spectrum, kind of. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, you could still... A game like Seventh Guest is conceivable without the videos, although they do add a lot, I think, to the atmosphere and stuff like that. But the the games itself, like the puzzles, they definitely are possible without the videos, are they? Right. It's it's really the the story that's told through the videos, I think. Yeah. I was thinking a bit um, if this game is really... Uh, if the FMV, calling them FMV games, is really the right thing. Because mm. in the end, you're not playing the video. I mean, you get the video cutscenes, cut right? And you're not really doing the video in some way. While in other games, like Bandersnatch, if you call it a game, then it's all video. Yeah. I think the the great difference was is that this is the first time full motion video came to anywhere, mm-hmm. really, uh, you know, outside of, of uh, in, a, in a digital interactive medium way. And, and uh, the, 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 the reason why I especially call them FMV games or, uh, is that they just, uh, they made it possible to actually show full motion video. And this is the era of, of the CD and the full motion videos involved with this, with the CDs. Definitely. Even though it's not a core gameplay component. Yeah. Yeah. It is it it's it's basically what makes the story possible. Mm, right. I, I do hope that Netflix kicks off like a new era of FMV games though. I mean that would be kind of cool to have a, a resurrection of this sort of stuff. I'm I'm in. I'm 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 totally in for this. Uh someone wrote down Dragon's Lair. That's a good one. Yeah, that was me too. <laughs> I just remembered that um, that game, if you want to call it a game again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a sequence of, of uh, animated clips. Right. Right. Yes. Um, it's it's basically a game, um, if I remember correctly, that came out on Laserdisc, mm-hmm. and Laserdisc had some some control mechanism built in where you could uh, switch between tracks in various ways, and you could actually make your way through the game by basically. Picking which which track you would play next, if I remember correctly, and that sounds a lot like uh, like the game we're, we've just discussed, like Bandersnatch, right? Yeah. But that was in in I think in the eighties. Let me check that. Yeah, definitely in the eighties. I even the early eighties. Eighty eighty three. Yeah, so. that's insane. That's insane for such a game. Yeah, but if it required a laser disc, it it was more expensive yeah. than a PC plus the seventh guest <laughs> yes. at that era. Oh boy! Totally. Yeah. And Dragon's Lair is what FMV games would become because I mean, you look at like the seventh guest and the eleventh hour, and what we've been talking about here with the puzzles. Yeah. When you look when it would get into like the Sega CD and stuff like that, it was just these straight tracks, and if you did what you were supposed to do, it would continue the video. Otherwise, they'd show you like a clip of you exploding or something. So Dragon's Lair is very much what the FMV genre would. T- turn into mm. after these these initial experiments within it yeah that's i think it's mostly quick time events right pretty much yeah what we, what we call now yeah I, I own one of the later later games uh brain dead 13 which is very much same like dragon's lairs oh, that yeah. all yeah. that is is qtes 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 <laughs> and the final sequence is like 50 button presses that you have to press perfectly in an order. And oh boy. And everybody loves quick time events in games. <laughs> They're the greatest. That's a, that's a known fact. <laughs> so maybe we should move on to the gameplay stuff a bit more then. It's basically, I was really weirded out by this, this eyeball mouse cursor. 
and it, it turns into this skeletal hand which points your finger right mm-hmm. i feel this is a very, very 90s thing already this uh this this changing mouse cursor is really setting the tone for me well it's really keeping in tone with the haunted house kind of genre yeah Definitely. And that eyeball is pretty intuitive as well, because I don't know if you notice when you're solving puzzles, if you, so like on the cake puzzle, for example, if you have your eyeball over one piece and then you scroll over to the next piece, the color of the eye changes from blue to brown and back to brown. So that way you can see uh, that you've changed piece, uh, you've changed over what you're hovering over. Right. Oh, yeah, that's cool. So um, what's there to tell in in terms of, of gameplay? I mean, how does this work? Uh, so pretty much the the base of the gameplay is exploring the mansion. You've got a map that you can use to find out what rooms are unlocked and have unsolved puzzles in them. And you're going to explore the mansion mm-hmm. by using that cursor, which is going to kind of take you on an on-rails FMV to the next area. And you're going to go in from room to room and try to find the puzzles. And in the seventh guess, that's all you're doing is trying to find the puzzles. Yeah. And upon solving enough puzzles, it will unlock more rooms in which you solve those puzzles until eventually you get to the end. It's really what it is. Yeah, and there's not just one puzzle you can do, right? I mean, if you can get if you get stuck on one puzzle, you can just move somewhere else and try a puzzle there. Yeah, there's typically a couple puzzles open at a time. Just in case you get stuck, you can move on to something else. Yeah, I feel that's kind of cool. That's uh, well, modern is not maybe the term, but it's you'd expect something more strict maybe from these old games. But this is. Well, yeah. there are puzzles that gate the opening up of the next rooms and the next puzzles. Mm-hmm. So you do end up having to forcefully go through a few of the puzzles to watch the relevant cutscenes. And not all the puzzles are required, oh. which is which is actually the thing is, is that you don't have to go through every each and every puzzle. But uh, you have to go through a few of them to get the required cutscenes to actually see the next part of the game when when the next room unlocks. Exactly. And I suppose there are not really different ways to solve these puzzles, are there? Very few of them have multiple solutions. Most of them are pretty set in stone. Yeah. The one puzzle that has to be probably mentioned right now is is that uh, there is one puzzle in the game, the microscope puzzle, (laughs) which is actually based on a previous game made by uh, one of the programmers called Spot. Okay. You know, like the cool Spot from from the 7-Up. Uh, oh, and wow. and that is a, that is essentially that game at the hardest difficulty and that's the only game or the only puzzle where you're actually playing up against an AI mm-hmm. and at the time and even currently it is one of the hardest games out there. Yeah. Okay. So what how does this work? So the 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 microscope puzzle is is that you're given a corner uh, there's four four different corners and each of you start off with uh, two blobs in opposite corners and you you make your move by either moving one uh you move one of the blobs to the adjacent square where it well where it multiplies the blob so that just uh splits into two blobs or you can move it two squares away where it moves the blob and then when you uh get into your new square if there are any opposing colored blobs in your square it colors all those blobs with your color Hmm. And it's set on a certain grid. I don't remember. It's like a 10 by 10 or, yeah. or 12 by 12. And and that's essentially is is the most difficult uh, puzzle in the game. And uh, if you really actually get stuck on any puzzles, there's a book on the table in the study where it will give you hints about the puzzles for the first two times. And on the third time, it solves it for you. Oh, that helps. 
And the only negative with it auto-solving is you will not get the video for completing the puzzle. Ooh, which is the the whole point of the game, in a way. Yeah, so if you skip the microscope puzzle, you won't see one of Hamilton's moments. Right. Yeah, that is a shame. Uh, uh, Although, I... I actually went in with the 25th version when I was playing it, and mm-hmm. I solved the microscope puzzle with the help of a web tool because it's just it's just <laughs> yeah. it's just a a depth algorithm. Yeah. So you yeah. just go one deeper, and then it automatically you're you're better than the the CPU. Mm. Uh, but uh, I didn't see any extra cutscene. Oh. Okay. Yeah. There's one where um, Hamilton is down there. I think in the 25th anniversary edition, it actually plays before you play the puzzle. Ah. It's the one with Hamilton um, looking in there and saying, oh, is this real magic? Because uh, he's looking at all of Stauff's like, scientific stuff. Yeah. So I think that in the 25th, they actually moved it to the beginning of the puzzle because most people will skip that puzzle. They also <laughs> made that puzzle not necessary to complete the game in the 25th edition. Yeah. It also right. it also might be the cases where I got frustrated with the piano puzzle where you're supposed <laughs> to follow the Stauff playing the piano in the notes is that after the sixth time, it's sort of like, I'm done with this. I'm just going to go through the book. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and then it plays the cutscene as well. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I'm not sure if it's a unique uh, unique thing from the 25th because I played that uh, this for this month rather than the uh, original uh, DOS version. Mm-hmm. Because I bought it specifically <laughs> uh, like uh, at the mid-September when it came on sale just to play for uh, the DOS Game Club. Wow, what a timing. That's bizarre. Games seem to go on sale just before we play them, Florian. That's really odd. Well, I think we, I think the stores are monitoring us. We, we might have a mole. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was just wondering, Adam. You you mentioned you got the the book. With, uh, you got the game with the, the strategy guide. But yeah, with a with a puzzle like this. I mean, does the book even help? No, the the book pretty much says good luck. And uh, it's <laughs> thanks, book. <laughs> yeah, you, if you could even look at the interview uh, that he had with the developers when he, because the the writer of the book got to interview the developers, and he asked him about the microscope puzzle and said, "Yeah, well, it is what it is." And he said, "You know, it's it's terrible for someone like me who has to write a guide on this, uh-huh. and it's impossible to tell people what to do." Yeah, he kind of gives some basic strategies and says, "Good luck," because that's yeah. the best you can get. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> yeah because i guess all of the other puzzles you can just say do this and that's the way to solve it but, mm-hmm. yeah there's literally move by move breakdowns for every chess puzzle or like yeah. a picture of the queen's puzzle i mean it's everything in that has a, a step-by-step except for the microphone it's like well good luck and if you need to use the auto solver and get it taken care of Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a puzzle later on uh, in the portrait gallery that has RNG in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, the best thing to to remember in, say, comparison to Mist and, and some of these others that we said before, all almost all of these puzzles are modeled after real wor- world equivalents. What do you mean by that? So they weren't new puzzles. So, for example, in a puzzle where you're supposed to put eight queens on a chessboard so that none of them can capture each other, that puzzle and that game existed long before, of course, this game. Right, right. And and a lot of these puzzles, and okay, they have a maze. A maze is simple. Uh, yeah. They have a word puzzle. A word puzzle is simple. So there's a lot of very world war, real world equivalents of these puzzles that actually existed. And of course, the microscope puzzle existed as the spot game. Hmm. And 
So instead of like mist where you have this, uh, this is that you have to go off and press this button and run over there. And then you have a large dial with 50 buttons and you have to press the exact same one or the electricity goes out and then you have to run back, turn the electricity back on and try a different button. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's actually just modeled after real world uh, things and like chess boards or like various different sequences happening or uh, yeah. uh, later on in, say, 11th hour, uh, you know, like Connect 4. Mm. Very, very simple, simple sort of things. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like the developers just collected uh, puzzles from wherever they could find them and all put them into the game. Like, oh, I got a, I found a puzzle in this book and then, okay, toss it into game. And just it's like a, a collection of puzzles from all over the place. Although I guess um, it's also it's really the, the I want to say Faust, but it's not Faust. It's uh, what's the Stauf. guy's name? Stauf. Exactly. I guess the story is that Stauf put all these puzzles together, right? So yes, yeah. I guess it makes sort of sense that he he just collected all these puzzles and and put them in. Except according to the story, every single one of them came from his mind, and he's the only one that could come up with these puzzles. Hmm, but the game is set in the past, so maybe... That is true, that is true. Maybe this is the origin of all the puzzles. Like Everybody's still from Staff. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not Staff's fault that it only took until 1993 (laughs) for the CD-ROM to be invented. I mean, he he had all this stuff figured out, but yeah, Yeah. no way to get it to the people. Well, the (laughs) CD-ROM was invented in 88, I think. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I wanted to ask a, a story thing, actually. Um, the the staff guy, now that we're talking about him, is he evil? What happened to him? I mean, is he inherently evil or did he get, uh, like, the devil inside him or something? Or, I mean, he wasn't evil at the start, right? Although he did steal the wo- the woman's purse, so maybe that turned him evil or what? I mean... It depends on what story you, you're, you're looking at. In the game, you kind of get the idea that he's inherently evil, especially at the end when he's trying to sacrifice a child. Hmm. Uh, but in the novel that was written by the same guy who did the screenplay for the game, he talks a lot about as he was a drifter, he starts hearing these voices telling him what to do. So it's almost kind of like a Faustian tale where he sells his soul. Yeah. Um, and then is doing all of these things. So the going after the guests, going after Tad in the name of this evil entity that's haunting him. Exactly. Yeah, that makes more sense from a story perspective, I think. Other than there's just this evil guy, he's really bad, period. I, I always got the impression when I played it that he was he was sort of being possessed and, mm-hmm. and he was do he was he was more like a tool. Yeah. Uh although it, it it's more like a he became a compliant tool where he's he the no longer the stuff no longer exists mm-hmm. as he was before. Mm, right, yeah. And was the novel, was it uh, like written for this game or was it a completely separate thing and then the game was based on the novel? After the success of the game, uh, Matthew Costello went ahead and wrote the novel to kind of capitalize on the success because he was already a horror author right. uh, that had marginal success. But I think this was one of those where he could get a book published and get into the hands of a lot of people because this was a hugely selling game. Yeah, not letting this chance pass and just... Yeah, that's oh, that's cool. That's not often that a book is based on a game. I mean, I, I guess in a sort of commercial way, sometimes when a, a universe is created, then suddenly lots of comics come out or whatever. But yeah, it's 
Because this was a proper novel, right? I mean, this is not... Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is not... yeah I mean, it's, it's a hundred and something pages long. I mean, it's it's a decent novel. It's a quick read. You could read it in about an evening. But mm. yeah, it, it's a proper novel. I have a, it's a, It was released in hardback. That's cool. Let's see. What's what's interesting to talk about next? Well, we we could we could talk about the people behind the game a bit. Mm-hmm. I always love that. I mean, that's that's one of the highlights in every episode to me. It's just yeah, talking about the people behind the game is I don't know. I I feel this is often glossed over when when people are talking about games and yeah, it's always cool to realize that well, people made these games and yeah. It's a good call, Esco. I, I think, Adam, do you know anything more about uh, Matthew Costello? I just really looked up uh, more information. He was mostly horror, gothic, and science fiction, but he did the video game scripts such as Doom 3 and Rage for, for ID software much, much later on. Yeah, the only thing I ever did uh, with him is there was a, a book that was turned into a movie called Beneath Still Waters, and the movie was garbage. That's, that's all I know. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, he did he did the script for it, but apparent apparently I watched the the documentary, the the fourteen minute long documentary that comes if you buy the game, mm-hmm. and that sort of uh, sort of just has him saying that they had to bring in somebody to actually do the script mm-hmm. because uh, they ha- had never done you know a game that needed to be scripted uh, in this way and uh, given to actors mm-hmm. actors to actually act out. So uh, they brought in a. Uh, minor horror gothic uh, uh, author to actually write up the game script and and to uh, sort of make sure that it sort of made sense in in some ways. Yeah. I'm reading here that's kind of interesting that they came up with the game long before they involved Matthew Costello. Yes. So there's actually the design document in the back of the strategy guide. Uh, and it's just very basic about what the seventh guest would be and what it wouldn't be. Uh, and I think they had a lot of ideas of like interaction, but when it came to actually melding it all into a game, they had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> and 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 by they, you mean um, Rob Landeros and Graeme Devine? Yeah. I think those are the two main people behind the game, right? Yeah, they were Trilobite. Uh, when Virgin broke off, it was Rob Landros and Graham Devine were able to create Trilobite and do exactly what they wanted. So they had complete creative freedom over it as well. So that was kind of another bonus of breaking away from Virgin. They didn't have any producers looking over their shoulders. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm reading here on Wikipedia that they were sort of fired from Virgin. They were working for Virgin mm-hmm. and then the CEO fired them, although not really. Yeah, to give them that. Yeah, exactly. So they could form their own company and then uh under the under the cloak of Virgin develop this without actually yeah, uh, involving Virgin too much. Yeah. There's uh Rob Stein as well who is uh, who worked who was the person who worked on the Spot game is uh, and he was uh one of the uh the artists for for this game. Uh, he uh, he was actually the designer for the Spot game and he was from Virgin. So what the most likely what they did is they said that okay we're going to let you go from Virgin Interactive so you can produce this because Virgin Interactive was uh, most likely based out of the UK at the time yeah. and uh, Trilobite was based out of Oregon. Oh. Okay. So uh, they sort of uh, told them to to go off and and do do your thing over there and uh, we'll we'll just publish this game and hopefully it goes well for us. Exactly. I see it, w- one of the um, 
target systems when developing this game was the uh, SNES CD. Later, also known as the PlayStation. Well, that's what I just wanted to say. That, that The SNES CD never happened, did it? Although it sort of did. Yeah. Because, uh, well, what's what's the story? I, I think it's it's Sony and Nintendo wanting to create a console together based on CDs. It was supposed to be an add-on for the SNES, right? Yeah. And... Uh, somehow Nintendo decided uh, maybe we can uh, um, outsmart Sony, and I think they tried to work with Philips, if I'm not mistaken, hmm. to work on a, on a second uh, add-on at the same time until Sony found out and then went on to build the PlayStation. Oh wow! Is this how the CDI came about? That's a Philips CD-driven console. Um, I, I think that's the reason why um, Philips had all the rights to many of the um, Nintendo IP. That's where all the terrible Mario and Zelda games come from. Yeah, Luigi's Mansion, right? And uh, no, no, <laughs> oh, uh, Mario's Hotel. It was uh, oh, the, that's run. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, and a Zelda game. Yeah, oh. Wand of Gamelon, one of the worst games ever made. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, of course, the CDI uh, predated the PlayStation by quite some time, actually. Mm-hmm. And the CDI was the, the only console port of the Seventh Guest. Oh, yeah. I, I just wanted to say when we were talking about uh, Dragon's Lair before that I played it on the CDI. And that's uh, that, that's like 10 years after the original Laserdisc version came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it still looked more impressive than most games at the time. So, yeah, that's kind of funny. So uh, let's probably go over Rob and Graham, who actually uh, sort of are the, the brainchilds of this title. Absolutely. Uh, I have Rob down for art. Uh, for games like Defender of the Crown and SDI, which are really well-known games, at least in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, Graham, apparently, when he was 16, he ported pole position for home computers for Atari and got kicked out of school because of that. What? Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. Because because apparently staying at home for for two weeks, uh, you know, because uh, you were uh, porting a video, uh, coding a video game doesn't sound like you were actually doing that. You were probably doing drugs or... (laughs) Or uh, some, something else, you know. It would be easier if you just said, I had the flu. But he later, of course, went on to join ID in 1999 to work on Quake 3 Arena and and some GBA versions of uh, Keen and, and Doom and Wolfenstein. Wow. Uh, but he later left them and then was lead designer and writer for Halo Wars Okay. at, a, at uh, Ensemble Studios for Microsoft. That's quite an impressive uh, game career right there. Mm-hmm. Now that, that you just mentioned um, Quake 3 Arena, I, I think it's uh, 20 years old today, the day we record. That's cool. It's actually 25 years ago today that the PlayStation came out as well. So <laughs> wow. It's, a... It's, a, it's a really historic day in gaming. I mean, it's only fitting. Of, of course, we knew all this when scheduling the podcast. Of course. Of course. <laughs> it's not like you sent us an email yesterday saying that, hey, can we move from Wednesday to Tuesday? Yeah, because I got to work. <laughs> Well, one cool thing to talk about with Rob and Graham, well, not really cool, is their um, view on this project. So when the seventh guest was coming out, both of them were fully into it. They thought they were, you know, creating something new, which is something that Graham really, really wanted to do. He wanted to be pushing um, the medium and he wanted to do more of the technical side pushing things. And Rob really saw this as a really cool way to push storytelling mm-hmm. uh, in some way he never did before. Yeah. Well, when it came down to the 11th hour coming out, 
Um, Virgin pretty much said, hey, that's great. Give us another one. And Rob went, of course, this is the greatest thing ever. And Graham went, I don't really want to do that. I've got these other two games <laughs> that are more technically impressive. And Virgin pretty much went, yeah, no, who really cares about that? Yeah. So they ended up pushing up the 11th hour. Rob is still very, very involved. And I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but he's still very involved with this IP. There's still a lot more happening with the seventh guest. And Graham, as you said, you know, he went on to work for id and Quake uh, yeah. and all those other people. He went, he distanced himself almost immediately after the 11th hour. He was not happy to be working on that game for as long as he was. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And did you say he's still involved with it now? Yeah. Um, I, if you want me to go into it, the, the seventh guest is still continuing um, now. What? Um, as of last year, they released a board game through Kickstarter which is a puzzle-based game where you get to play as one of the guests um, and you have to solve puzzles. And once you get to enough rooms, you can actually get to the attic and win the game. Oh. Uh, they actually released a small handheld version of the microscope puzzle called Infection that you can keep in your pocket and play. Okay. Uh, there is a web series coming out hopefully sometime this year that stars the likes of like the, ang- the guy who plays the angry video game nerd, James Rolfe. Uh-huh. They've been um, filming since 2016. Uh, and he's pretty much on board. And then, of course, this Halloween, so not too long ago, the 13th Doll, which was a fan-made sequel, was released that actually had the seventh guest license wow. attached to it. Okay, wow, that's great. I had no idea about any of this. And even the original actor for Stolf, Robert Hischbeck, came back yep. to uh, reprise the role. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, so there's a really solid fan base still. Yeah, everything except for the uh, Seventh Guest 3 Kickstarter that Rob tried to do himself has been successful. Uh, Kickstarter, the Seventh Guest 3 failed, unfortunately. Was it called that? Yeah, he was marketing it as the Seventh Guest 3, and when it failed, the fan game, the 13th Doll, was succeeding, so Rob actually reached out to them and said, hey, would you like the license? Wow, that's that's kind of cool, though. I mean, it's cool that, that uh, he's at least willing to work with the community to... To keep his his thing going. I mean... Yeah, he loves this game. He yeah. loves this game. Oh, that's awesome. We should, I don't know, try to reach out on Twitter or something and try to, uh, yeah, get him to to retweet us. I don't know, something. Le- leave us so, leave us a comment that we can include in the actual, in the actual podcast. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> um, so uh, now that we're talking about people, I think we should mention uh, George Sanger once more as well. I mean, we, you, you mentioned him at the start, Esco, but he's yeah. he's the fat man, right? He's the um, the the music guy, the the composer. Yeah, he, he's 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 really was at least at that time. I remember remember him is that he he was this god of music. But mm-hmm. uh, of course, uh, if you look at his resume, I wrote up a, a couple of them in our notes here. It's, it's like okay, Maniac Mansion, mm-hmm. a game you've probably heard of before. Wing Commander, yeah. a game you've probably heard of heard of before. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, Loom before he transcribed Swan Lake. He, he was given the notes, uh, was sent by the developer of, of Loom, and he transcribed them to MIDI. Yeah. Uh, uh, he did Ultima Underworld. Again, Electronic Arts games. Master of Magic, SimCity 2000. Of course, the sequel, 11th Hour. And then, of course, uh, as a great note later on, SpongeBob SquarePants Revenge of the Flying Dutchman <laughs> on the uh, GameCube, I think it was. Oh, perfect. <laughs> he also worked on a, on a Might and Magic uh, game, actually. So Yeah. That's did he really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he was made the big. theme for uh, Might and Magic 3. Wow, I did not know that. I'm a Might Magic nut. So, yeah. Well, I learned something. That's amazing. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, if if you go into the the gallery in in the seventh guest, uh, you see uh, there's a picture of him. He's the man with the cowboy hat and mm-hmm. the cigar. And if you go back in the eleventh hour into the gallery, you can actually see him better better there. And uh, he said that uh, that during the process of making making the the music for this is is he sort of adopted a bit of uh, the Peter and the Wolf uh, uh, from Prokofiev. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the thematic that each character had their own instrument to sort of reflect the personality of, of that character. Wow, that's cool. And and there's there's all he's released a uh, a double CD actually with the music of the seventh guest and the eleventh hour. Oh. You can get it off his website. It's probably something like thefatman.com. dot <laughs> com. <laughs> I will. I'll definitely put up a link to his website along with the post that goes on with this uh, this episode. So yeah, that's cool. I'll look that up. Um, the, the music, it's, it's, uh, it's CD audio, but there's also MIDI music in there, I think, or is it all CD audio? I think, I think there's both MIDI music and, and CD audio because at first I didn't get the CD audio working, but some music still played, just not all of it. Uh, I'm trying to think on, uh, you do set a MIDI device as well as a PCM device when you installed it, yeah. install it. So it does have it. I guess it, most of the BGM is probably CD audio because then you can stream that. But there's probably MIDI that's playing when uh, you cannot access the CD because you're using it for the video. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, that but it it uses so it uses Redbook uh, uh, for for the for some of the music and uh, because it comes out on two CDs, they actually just duplicated the uh, the uh, audio assets onto the second second CD. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. What a what, what a waste. <laughs> but the 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 thing was is that if you actually play through the game, and, and Adam will probably remember this better, hopefully, is, is that you switch to CD2 about 15 minutes before you complete the yeah. game. Yeah, I think it's so that there's a puzzle to get into the attic and then one more puzzle. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, because it's been a while since I played the CD version, I think only that puzzle to get into the attic and the puzzle in the attic are on the second CD. So literally <laughs> the last couple puzzles. And those are pretty easy puzzles too. So you'll, yeah, 15 minutes is a pretty good, uh, and that's with yeah. watching the video. That's a pretty good <laughs> estimate of time on CD2. <laughs> yeah, but you also install the game from CD2, I think. Yes, or, you do. Don't yes, you? you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you, you put in CD2 first, weirdly and install the game and then switch over to one and play like 95% of the game using CD1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as I'm as, as I've mentioned before and as, as far as I'm aware uh, this was probably the first multi CD game ever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Which is kind of crazy because CD-ROM games hadn't been around at all for that long so to go immediately into multi CD territory which seems like kind of Ridiculous, but do we, do we have an idea what the first CD game um, for the home market was? I don't know. I think King's Quest V was a really early one, uh, but I'm not sure if it's like the first. But that's a 1990 game, and there's definitely uh, a CD-ROM release yeah. of that. Yeah, I'm not sure how early Marathon is on the Mac. Mm. Of course, that was an FPS game, but it, I mean, I used to have a copy of Marathon for the Mac. Mm. For, I didn't never had a Mac, but I had Marathon. <laughs> well, it could sit next to the DVD game for which you didn't have a DVD drive. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently, um, I, I found one game called The Manhole. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, from 
from 88, which is yes. actually the year CD-ROM was um, standardized. Wow. That's correct. That's uh, Isn't that, uh, it's a Sierra or something, that kind Rudabund, of game. Rudabund, mm, yes. Some, right. some very well-known well known developer yeah. or publisher. Yep. I think literally six people had a CD-ROM drive in 1988 in total worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, including the devs. <laughs> I remember that era sort of in the fact that the first CD-ROM times were SCSI drives. Right. So you actually had to have more money <laughs> just to have a CD-ROM drive in that era. And mm-hmm. the IDE uh, uh, versions of them only came much later. Yeah. And that's what helped make it more common. But I remember seeing like a, a 1989 CD-ROM drive that was that was a SCSI drive attached via uh, you know external SCSI port. And right. the, the, probably the SCSI card itself inside the PC probably cost like 500 bucks. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, it made no sense back then. No, but um, well, actually it, it says um, the CD-ROM version of the game is from 89. So... Ah, uh, well, lots of people bought 12, that 12 year, people had a CD-ROM version. then. <laughs> But if if we talk a bit about the CD-ROM, and this this is sort of the kickoff of the CD-ROM era, yeah. we've talked about it, and the the way that this was seen then in, in other games it was is that if you take for example uh, last month's game, uh, uh, or next month this is October, and next month we're going to be talking uh, about uh, Wipeout. Yeah, the Wipeout is a good example of a game that was released on CD just to have the music. Mm-hmm. So they used music uh, to actually have it. And then um, I have another example here, which is Micro Machines 2 from 1995. I have the CD version of Micro Machines 2, but there was also a floppy release. Yeah, exactly. Micro Machines 2 has CD music on it. Which I never heard because it was bugged, and I, uh, if I kept the CD-ROM in the drive, the, the game the game would crash and never run. Oh. It's a weird thing. But uh, <laughs> you put in a CD player and you play the music. But it also there was also a floppy version. Yeah. So the way that they used the CD-ROM drive, uh, because it became more common and it became cheaper to manufacture these games, is they added more value mm-hmm. for the user. Uh, a, a good example is. Uh, Terminal Velocity 1995 by 3D Realms, also a a game that I own and I like a lot. There was a later Windows version called Fury 3. That's a good one. Somebody remembers that. And the CD-ROM version added uh, 70 megabytes of extended pre-rendered 3D cutscenes, a bonus hidden planet, higher image resolution, including more detailed textures and support for eight-player network multiplayer. Oh, like a premium version. Yeah, and I ha- I have that version in my shelf somewhere, uh, and uh, and this was the thing is, is that if you had the CD ROM uh, drive, you would be more likely to buy the CD version, and you would pay a bit more for that. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. of course, later on, when the PlayStation One came out in in the West in the second half of 1995, the CD ROM was basically uh, in high adoption with people buying new PCs or upgrading their PCs, they would have a CD-ROM drive in them. Yeah. So they could just port the, the PlayStation 1 games off on, onto DOS after a bit of trying. Yeah. And, and that 
they'd or then do the reverse is that okay it's just a cd-rom game we just have to do a bit of tweaking around like uh a good example later on is, say, Final Fantasy VII that came out for the CD. That has a lot of full motion video for all the cutscenes on it. But there was just a separate installer CD that came uh, with the game for uh, for PC, and you just install the installing bits, and and the rest of it was the game, just like the PlayStation version. Of course, the code was very different. Uh, I have a copy of uh, Mega Man X. Uh, on on for DOS mm-hmm. on CD as well, and apparently the history of that is that the original coder just recoded the whole thing. Wow! Uh, uh, the the whole base code of the game was redone just for the DOS version, and there's a few differences actually between the Super Nintendo and the DOS version. Besides the DOS version having MIDI music, which is absolutely horrible compared to the Super Nintendo, but there there's a lot of this era was is that you get more space to put more of your game and it's easier to just be lax mm. in not having to compress everything or yeah. or to uh just decide that okay it's 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 a cheap medium let's stick stuff on it yeah i remember just these fmv cutscenes were all the craze even in non fmv games i mean i remember command and conquer for example it was all about those videos it was all about the videos in between the missions that was what people were talking about so yeah even even in in games where it wasn't so much the the focus adam i think it's important that we go back to you for a little while because uh apparently you have to leave us yeah i have to go pick up the kiddos yeah, that's no problem, man. I mean, it's super cool that you wanted to join us. And I think I think we can wrap this up uh, after you've left just by mentioning a few quick things. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think w- it's good to just give you the stage. I mean, just have some closing words on, on this game. It's clearly an important title to you. Oh, yeah. So what would you say to, to people maybe not familiar to the game and wanting to check it out? Well, the first thing I would say is don't check out any of the reviews on YouTube because the coolest thing to do right now is hate on this game. Oh. Uh, a lot of the people I follow are huge adventure game fans. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, I'm not an adventure game fan, which is probably why I like this. <laughs> this is really not an adventure game. This is a collection of logic puzzles. Yeah. And I love logic puzzles. So if you have the patience to sit through something like that and maybe not um, look at a walkthrough really quickly, then there's a lot to enjoy here. And there's a lot in the atmosphere and the story. Um, I was talking about the 11th hour being really, really dark. Um, it's more dark in that case because at the end of the 7th guest, you end up defeating Stauf. But when you find out in the 11th hour, he's actually become one with the mansion. So he's literally, the mansion is consuming people. So he's got these people out in the out in the world, like killing people and throwing them in the house. And the house is literally consuming wow. them. And then to, and this is to bring Stoff back, but to not, to make it even darker than that, at one point, two girls go in there and the house impregnates them. What? So it actually does employ assault. It applies a lot of this. It's, it's a much darker game. Uh, it it kind of <laughs> makes sense, but it, it's, it's very, very dark. And Hirschbeck is also in that and does a wonderful job. Uh, as Stauf. So they're both fantastic games and they're both worth checking out. The 11th Hour does have a couple more quirks that people may get on and not get on. And then the the last thing is the 13th Doll, which just came out, is a wonderful callback to this. 
It doesn't necessarily make sense in the storyline, but it takes place in between the seventh guest and the eleventh hour, oh. uh, where you play as Tad, who's now found himself in a mental asylum, and this new green doctor decides the best way for him to deal with his trauma is to take him back to the mansion. Oh, uh, and you get to play as either Tad or the doctor, so you actually get two different games in one, which is really cool. The puzzles are different, the story's different. You get a lot going on, and there's six different endings to the game, so it's there's a lot of different replay for it. So wow. it's definitely worth it. It's actually not if i remember correctly it's not that pricey i was a backer yeah um it took like eight years for them to develop but it's finally out and it's actually quite good um and then yeah the seventh guest i love i love this game this is easily one of my favorites um it it sets it's something i play at least once a year cool man well it's really cool that you wanted to come on the show and, and and talk about it i mean this these sorts of memories is really yeah that's just always so lovely to hear people sharing you know their childhood favorite games and and yeah, super, super cool to uh, to hear these stories. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, no problem. I hope you you stick around and, and maybe join a future one. I'll be around, and if you play a Might and Magic game, I'll be there. I guarantee it. Well, there you go. Seems we have to play a Might and Magic game, Florian. Do we have a game for April yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're playing Ultima 7, so you might want to take a break, because the game you oh, should right, play is right. Might and Magic 4 and 5, because they combined into one game. So. Ooh. There's nothing like beating two RPGs in one month. Right. Okay, maybe so a bit of a solo. What do we do next year? <laughs> <laughs> 2020 year of Might and Magic at DOS Game Club. <laughs> Just the whole I, I will make a recommendation page. There you go. Oh, that's good. Might and Magic Club. Yeah. <laughs> I'm game. I'm in. <laughs> okay, well, uh, good luck with, with what you have to do. And uh, yeah, I think, I'll, I think we have a few more things to talk about uh, right here. Don't we, guys? Yeah, a few, I think. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Adam. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. So we talked a little bit about uh, the the people and the the FM, the well, the CD-ROM uh, stuff that it kicked off. Um, we haven't actually talked a lot about what the game looks like, right? I mean, the graphics, the um, We've we've talked a little bit about the technology and the, the video stuff, but uh, it's really a mix of uh, pre-rendered 3D scenes and actual footage of, of people, actors, filmed actors, right? I mean, I feel that's really those combining those two things. That's what what's unique about the game. Yeah, I, there's the the scenery itself, so with all the backdrop and and all of the sort of the. Uh, the non-video, uh, the non-acted items are just 3D rendered in 3D Studio in DOS. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, apparently uh, there were large objects and, and they wanted originally to do it so that they just take pictures and sort of just show these pictures of where they are. But but they could do everything in 3D Studio and that was much, much easier to do. And But uh, because of the era is that... Uh, uh, so large rooms where they were rendering the the movement footage, it took twenty to forty minutes each per frame to render that. So you could imagine per frame, per frame. Okay. So uh, so in large spaces like the hallway, when you go up and down the stairway, that was twenty to forty minutes for each frame. Man, going up and down that that staircase. That's crazy. And that's because the whole room, of course, was rendered. Mm-hmm. And then because the rendering buffers didn't exist back then, which we have now when Power VR and, and 3DFX and all that developed that much later, later on in the late 90s, is that it, you, you just, 
went slice by slice on on the rendering as okay this is what it looks like next step this is what it looks like so yeah you can imagine that i don't know uh 60 seconds of video uh mm-hmm. might take quite some time on the pc to actually render it yeah i i can't imagine what it must be like um when creating this stuff i mean it's not like your first version is immediately the final one so i imagine they must have rendered this you know dozens of times and each time when you make a slight adjustment you have to re-render the whole thing so just take ages to to put this all together it seems well i I would think that you'd make the wire mesh and and the texture and you could see what each object looks like and then you just put the objects in space and then you just make the movement through that space and then that's sort of the outcoming video so it's probably a lot easier i mean if you remember from rise of the robots is why can't your robots face in the other direction Mm -hmm. because it would take too long to 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 render render the the robots again (laughs) yeah 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 so so i think this was probably this even predates it and they probably did it better here yeah than they did back then but of course this is on rails so yeah, as the same way that Mist was, so you press a button, you go somewhere, and the movement is sort of played out, yeah. and that how you move there. Yeah, and it's the 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 mansion isn't that big, hmm. so probably once you enter a room and you enter a smaller space, then of course there's less objects to render. It's it's much smaller. You could probably do it a lot faster. Right. But the hallway itself, if if you uh, remember, and and the game you'll notice that the hallway has no puzzles. Mm. Except, well, the one on the doorway when you face it. But but even then, you transform into its own screen. Right. For for the uh, the doorway puzzle where you have to move the spiders along the um, the picture of, of the doorway. Yeah. So uh, it's not in the same space and you're not actually moving in that environment. Yeah. It seems they were more clever about it because... If they had changed the design of the hallway later on, and it would be involved with other puzzles, then they it means you have to redo all those puzzles as well. And yeah, yeah. So if you go back to where your mist comes from, is is that okay? You flip a switch, and then suddenly something changes. If it, if you added a little red light into the hallway because you did something, yeah, you'd have to re-render exactly. the whole space and all the movement in the space, doubling the the space, the, doubling the the CD space that that actual room would take up, and that would then not be feasible from yeah from a development point of view. Exactly. Um, that's the three D rendered stuff, but but I feel the live action footage. That's really what makes it unique. I think this may be one of the first games to have this. Well, Mist came out earlier. Yeah, okay. And and uh, I think on the Mac it came out uh, like uh, this. Mist was predated it by a few months, uh, I think. And they also had a live a live actor doing some stuff. Of course, this in this case, what what they noticed and, and what they had and what it says in the documentary is is that this was more like stage acting mm-hmm. because they had to make large sweeping movements and and uh, talking with their hands and oh no, overly dramatic <laughs> kind of things that that because you, you it was being shot from a fixed fixed position with a wide lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually, of course, is that most of it is faded out because it's all blue screen and, and stuff. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, which which makes it look like ghosts, you know? It's like half transparent and like weird cut out backgrounds. It's I don't know, it's kind of spooky. It's kind of cool. Yeah, and and for example, if if you have like animated hands playing the piano, that was just somebody underneath a blue piece of cloth <laughs> moving their hands. <laughs> Florian? Ah, I just wanted to add some um useless trivia. Lovely. Um, do you know why they switched the chroma keying, what it's called, from blue to green screen? I have no idea. It used to be blue, right? Yeah. It used to be blue, but uh, uh, later on, basically everyone switched to green. And the reason, apparently, is that uh, weathermen used to wear blue shirts on TV. <laughs> yeah. You can't wear a blue suit and then present the weather because you'd be a floating head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's something. And nobody has green clothes, apparently. This is just not a color that people wear. Yeah. I'm wearing a green shirt right now. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I was looking up this um, chroma keying technique, and apparently it's a lot older than you'd think. Um, it was already used in the 30s. Wow. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. I have no idea how that would have worked back then. I'm, I mean, I, I can totally understand how you do that digit digitally, but with the te technology of the 30s, no idea. Apparently, you don't need digital circuits for that at all because, yep. uh, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> crazy Although stuff. they did, they did have a lot of effects already. I mean, they were sort of focused on, on weird visual tricks in those early films. So yeah, it's kind of interesting they managed to, to pull this effect off. That's impressive. So yeah, that's that's the graphics, and and we spoke about the the music already. I think we, we also mentioned a lot of the releases, but we haven't really listed them out or anything, right? No. So maybe a quick recap is in order. So uh, originally released for DOS, a CDI, and the Mac, Mac OS, uh, that was, and then later Windows in 1997. So that's sort of the or original release. Right. And then uh, later on, of course, OS X and Linux was released via ScumVM and, and the modern markets. Yeah. Yeah. That basically means you can play it on everything nowadays. Yeah. Like most those games, really. You can even play it on your phone. Yeah. Yeah, like, like I did with Monkey Island. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but you can. Yeah. I think uh, one one of one person in the club played it on their phone, and because there's a, a maze puzzle has a solution in the game that you have to look at, he couldn't see it because his phone was too small. <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah. And you you get lost down there. <laughs> yeah, not ideal. Because the way that it's designed is that if you don't take the right turn, you get lost, and then you, that's uh, it. You try it uh, again. Yeah. No, maybe maybe don't play this on a phone unless you have a really large screen phone. But a tablet might yeah. work okay. Yeah, yeah, I think it does because I think most of the puzzles actually could be quite nice with the touchscreen. So yeah, yeah, which probably doesn't work uh, in many cases. Well, it emulates the mouse, right? I think I played I played Monkey Island on yeah. on my phone, uh, and that yeah. worked okay. VM, yes, of yeah. course. Yes, yes, I, I think I may have confused some DOSBox ah, mobile stuff. Okay. Yeah. Just just, just forget I said anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's the original game, uh, Seventh uh, Guest. And of course, not, not that much later, the Eleventh Hour came out, right? Yeah. Which expanded from two to four CDs. Yeah. And this the Eleventh the Hour, which we've touched upon a lot uh, during this, because they're sort of inseparable, really, as, as titles, mm -hmm. in, in that uh, the Eleventh uh, Hour uh, had 
the same Stoff Mansion. It ha- was the first game to have 640 by 480 full screen video. What actually uh, happened is that if your system wasn't good enough to run it, it would decode it in black and white. Oh, that's interesting. So it would show it to you in black and white because you, your PC couldn't handle the color. Right. So going back to what Florian said uh, uh, earlier, that okay, you, maybe your PC couldn't handle the, uh, the the full motion video. In in this case, they actually provisioned for it. Is that they thought okay that right? And and the way that it plays out is is that uh, the eleventh hour, you start at a certain hour, and then you solve puzzles to move on to the next hour mm-hmm. with more new puzzles, mm-hmm. and then you get like a recap of the events that are sort of going on in the story and why you're actually in Stoff Mansion again in between the hours and then you get the full full motion video thing of the story i think it's a better game okay there's a, a treasure hunting aspect to it so in between puzzles you're actually supposed to run around the mansion finding these uh objects based on esoteric hints okay what so yeah you're you're literally supposed to find the the game gives you a hint so it has like basically a small uh mobile computer and then a hint shows up giving you like a text uh, uh, that gives you a hint is that you should, uh, that you're, fo- whatever the music plays or, or oh, something like that. And then you have yeah. to go find the organ or oh. uh, a knife that happens to be somewhere or a thing of toothpaste. And, right. and uh, the, but the, the, uh, the in-game has a better hint system. Yeah. So it has an in-game hint system where you can press hint and it'll actually tell you, okay, what were you supposed to looking at? It'll give you an idea and. There's more games where you actually play against stuff, so play against the computer. And I think every game at the end of the hour is always one of these, Hmm. where you're sort of challenged by by stuff, and you have to figure out what's going on. And and in many times, because the player goes first, you are actually at a disadvantage. Okay. Yeah. Well, you can't you can't have you win all these games at on on the first try, right? So yeah. But that does sound more fun, really. And also the hint stuff is kind of modern in a way. I mean, modern adventure games have this hint system built in, but but back in the day it wasn't that common at all for a game to give you hints. Well, uh, Under Killing Moon, which was mentioned earlier, it had the uh, it had the easy version of the game which had a complete hint system in it. Okay. It, it you know from it was the kind is where uh, you press a button I'd like to know what to do next or I've missed something right. please tell me what I should be doing. So you go to a place and pick up an object kind of thing or or insert coin into machine right so so that had a complete hint system in it uh, but this is sort of nicer in that it either lets it like do you want me to make the next move against stuff hmm. yeah and the actually the final puzzle uh, everything else you can auto solve except for the final puzzle okay and the final puzzle is is, is it's it, there's a special name for this game. I re, it's sort of related to Go and Othello and all these kinds of. It's sort of like a Connect Five game, mm. and um, you can't you have to beat that yourself. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's like the final boss battle. Yeah, uh, and uh, I uh, I went uh, the Apple route, and there's an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I found an app which actually lets me simulate the game. That my phone took forever calculating whatever is supposed to be the next moon at the move at the highest difficulty level, but it wow. sort of like helped me defeat the bo- uh, the the final one when I played through the eleventh hour even for this uh, this month of October cool. as well. It started to refresh it. Right, right, yeah, that's cool. 
That's cool. Because I just didn't have the four hours to sit there and replay and replay and replay, unfortunately. No, that's that's fair. Now, uh, what's interesting to me is this one you wrote down, which is called Uncle Henry's Playhouse. Yes, Henry's, I mean, I, Henry Stauff's Playhouse. These, Playhouse. Yeah, I've heard of these other ones, but this one, what what is this? So this was released in 1996 and basically was a collection of the puzzles from The Seventh Guest and The Eleventh Hour. Huh? What? <laughs> yep. That's, but, but without the context? Yeah. Like, okay, so none of the the meta game that's removed and it's just the sequence of puzzles and that's it. I guess it was just like, the, I've never played it as myself either, but right. I've marked it down that nobody ever played, which was most likely. Yeah, really weird. <laughs> just a really odd title. But I guess they, they had everything. It's sort of like, let's release it. And it was probably like a Windows 95 release back then. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. yeah. Moby Games says it it was, yes. Yeah. 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 So so it's definitely just like a, a rehash and, and trying to bank on whatever they still have left. Mm, exactly. Um, weirdly, that's, that's sort of the end of Trilobite, isn't it? I mean... Did they release anything else at the time? Because it seems like n- not a lot came out after this for a while. No, I don't. I think that was pretty much it. Is that eleventh hour? I think uh, lost money. Huh. That doesn't help. They lost a bit of money, and then they decided to cl- to close it up afterwards. Wow! What a run! Taking the whole gaming world by storm by making the, one of the first CD-ROM games, and then. Making a sequel and then, well, that's it already. They only existed for like three years or something. It's really, really odd company. Yeah, I'm not sure if it if it ever was, you know, made officially defunct. Hmm. I mean, apparently, uh, some of this was um, uh, after Clandestiny, which was mentioned earlier. It basically uh, they uh, went Landorus and Divine went completely different directions. Right, and then. Uh, that went to, into a different way, and then they probably closed down in around 1998. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they relaunched again when when they uh, released it on mobile and and all that. So. Yeah, but that's the 25 uh, fifth anniversary version, right? So I mean, well, the mo- mobile version came out in in 2010. Oh, okay, so they just uh, play- made it on iPhone and iPad, and right. then they had uh, the uh, microscope game in 2011. Okay, and of course, the 25th edition came out 2018. Right, <laughs> but still, I mean, that's that's uh, uh, 15 years or something between the original games and and them releasing another one of these. Yeah, and there's a bunch. Then uh, later on, with the uh, they tried the Kickstarter campaign, but they never made it. So the Thirteenth Doll is sort of, but it's probably like one of these backburner companies that's still run by Rob. Yeah, <laughs> that it has never been made defunct, but it still gets a little bit of money here and there mm, from uh, right, the IPs yeah. and probably the 25th anniversary release, and maybe now a bit uh, from the Thirteenth Doll and the board game that they made. Yeah, and they do seem to have quite a, a fan following. So. In a way, it's like, well, it's the seventh guest seemed to be pretty dead for a for a good number of years after the eleventh hour came out, but it seems like sort of making a comeback now. So that's that's kind of cool, you know, with this thirteen doll release and all this this board game stuff, and yeah, they're like they're 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 back now. <laughs> I can't wait for a for a fourth game, <laughs> or is that not happening? 
Well, uh, they'll probably have to see if they took eight years to make the 13th doll and it's still fan, <laughs> it's still fan made. It's not actually an yeah. official trilobite release. They just got the IP because Rob right. couldn't actually pick up the seventh guest himself for the third game. So yeah, okay. there's probably something down the line, 2025. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of interesting that the 13th doll, it's called 13th doll, which is after 11th hour. This, they've got this number sequence going, right? With 7, 11, 13. But it, I think Adam said it, it actually plays between the, those two games. Yeah. So shouldn't they have gone with nine? No, it probably relates to the amount of dolls actually in the seventh guest. So the amount of kids that died oh, during right. the story. And then there's this 13. So that was probably the original 12. Right. If you actually go into the doll room in the seventh guest, you can hear the kids screaming. Oh, lovely. Yes. <laughs> so the 13th doll is probably the one, the extra one where, where the, yeah. there was the 12. It's it's a bit hazy on, on the memory. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Thir- you know, uh, bordering on uh, 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's also this point about a web series being released. Do you know anything about that? Well, Adam, Adam mentioned it just before leaving, of yeah. course, is that there's supposed to be like a new web series. So probably little videos of the story or background or, or something. Yeah. So apparently that might be starting soon before the end of the year. Well, huh, that's interesting. That That's something to watch for us. I think, uh, yeah, once that is out, I think we should you know, mention it or tweet about it or seems like a a relevant thing now that we've done this podcast. Yep. Now, I, I want to move on to over to the, the contemporary reviews, especially because it's interesting to me that it, it seemed like they got, well, a lukewarm response at most. Uh, it doesn't seem to get all these great scores, does it? No, uh, the, you can go uh, onto the forums and, and see the, the magazine scans that uh, a DOS game called Member Picks had, has put up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's really not that great. Of course, one, yeah. they, I think PC Review, which mentioned that it was 70 British pounds at the time, which is probably the equivalent of about 100 <laughs> bucks back at the t- uh, as well. This is that yeah. it was not cheap. And the gameplay mm-hmm. was maybe a bit more lukewarm. Yeah. And wasn't that fantastic and, and uh, had issues as well. As, but um, if you have the uh, reviews open yourself, mm-hmm. then you can see what, what it said exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling through it now. Um, it, it, for example, this is from, let's see, PC Zone, I guess. No, this is not PC Zone. This is the other magazine. Uh, it just says PC, but I don't know. PC Review. Oh, PC Review. Right. Exactly. PC Review, they write, If you want amazing graphics and sound and a truly innovative product, which just lacks a substantial involving game to support it, take a look. So, yeah, that's already pretty harsh on the on the gameplay element. Well, you but spend the- an e- 
the seven out of ten wasn't wasn't really devastating in that time, right? No, um, that's was, true. It was still decent. Yeah, that's true. But you expect because it's so novel, you expect it to be hailed as a oh yes, this is a new era of game. But it's it's really not. It's like yeah, it looks all right. It sounds all right. It's cool. It's just not a lot of fun to actually play, which seems not really like a lot of praise for a. A hundred dollar game, essentially. It's, I mean, <laughs> reading this now makes me realize maybe I just didn't play it at the time because people didn't seem that enthusiastic yeah. about it. There, there was there was an issue that is mentioned on, uh, on the forums as well is is that uh, you had to get the patch uh, for proper uh, Sound Blaster sixteen support. That's bad. So it had it had problems with with sound cards uh, when it was released and uh sound blaster 16 support didn't didn't come until like the 1.2 release well luckily that wasn't the absolute most popular <laughs> sound card at that time no but uh but a lot of people like myself we, i had the sound blaster 16 plus cd rom drive bundle box mm. uh, so that's where my CD-ROM drive and my sound card came from. So that's sort of the the essential thing was the Sound Blaster 16. Yeah, was 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 the big thing and the OPL3 chip on it. And getting a patch to the players. Yeah, was not like today. No, you had to actually know where to get it on a BBS or or uh, mail in a self-addressed stamped envelope and. They'll send you a, a, a floppy disk with it on it. Yeah, we we talked about earlier in other episodes how about how it was really difficult at the time to get patches to people, basically impossible. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was PC review, giving it a seven. But PC Zone was even more harsh. They gave, only gave it a six out of ten, saying. Alone in the Dark still remains the finest example of a horror supernatural thriller on the PC. It's all those camera angles and clever graphic techniques you see. And then they have a little chart with uh, Alone in the Dark scoring lots of points. And then the Legacy in number two scoring less. And then they have the seventh guest scoring even less. So they made like a little list of horror games and they put in the seventh guest last in, in the seventh guest review. So yeah, they say uh, technologically okay, but disappointingly weak on gameplay and way too expensive. So another thing about the price, yeah. Yeah, well, to 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 get to get this far, you had to have a actual sound card. You had to have a CD-ROM drive, which means is that mm-hmm. at that point you have enough money for the game, <laughs> <laughs> or not actually, because you spent it all on this. Yeah crazy system (laughs) but of course the pace of the game is very sort of different compared to alone in the dark yeah definitely and you'll remember that from last year is that alone in the dark makes you frustrated because uh, and then you die or you did something before you were supposed to Mm -hmm. and then you die Mm -hmm. or you're soft locked yeah (laughs) yeah at least you can't really get stuck in this game i mean you can get stuck on a puzzle but you can always just try again you can never really get yourself in an unwinnable state like you can or 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 just keep dying you, you don't really die well no. yeah it's diff- it's different isn't it you don't really lose i suppose but you just try again until you get it yeah and it's it's more of a slow paced game that you could spend hours on rather than instant gratification or then 
uh, a game where you uh, have to do a lot of sk- save scumming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, ultimately, I do I do agree with with the reviews is that the gameplay is very it feels very artificially uh, long. <laughs> mm, right. Like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're only at two hours. Come on. I was on, I was on Monkey time. Island, remember? That was three yeah. and a half. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I, see a, I see a correlation I see there. a pattern. Yeah, every time we have Esco on, it takes forever. <laughs> By the way, um, we just mentioned this PC Zone review, and they say it requires a CD-ROM drive with 150k per second transfer rate, yep. which is literally single-speed CD-ROM. Oh. Yeah, I <laughs> Yeah, okay. You need the bare minimum CD-ROM yep. speed. That's what you need. <laughs> yeah, uh, Adam also mentioned before I left that that it seems like hating on on seventh guest is like the thing to do and yeah, these reviews seem to sort of support that view. So, uh I think it's cool that we're giving the game some love instead. I mean, it's easy to uh to denounce things that you don't like, but actually there's there's a lot to this game as well, I feel. So yeah, I, I think that's that's great about those game club because we always have people on the show who love the game, yeah, or have loved it for for a very long time, and you can get to know the nice parts of a game. Exactly. I think that there hasn't been a single game about which we didn't have quite a few nice things to say. Rise of the robots. <laughs> well, it looks okay. It looks okay. It, yeah, we said it, it, it looks said great. It great. The <laughs> so. gameplay, however. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't, uh, don't mention it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you think we can wrap this up or yeah. is there something important that we've missed? I, I think I think we can wrap this up and, and just say is, is that you can get the game on GOG or Steam as the 25th anniversary release that has some uh, lifestyle improvements on it. Uh, there's also something that hasn't been mentioned is, is that once you do complete the game, you get to do open house mode, oh. which means is that all the puzzles are available and you can go everywhere and you can repeat them all. That's fun. So you can do the, the Microsoft puzzle again. <laughs> yeah, and you can just go back and complete a puzzle or have fun with something you did before. And uh, 11th Hour does that as well. And that's especially cool because not all the puzzles are required, which you said. Yeah. So then you can go back to ones that are still open. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Surprisingly, um, e- even though the game isn't very popular, the original big box release can be pretty pricey if you want to get into that kind of collecting. Oh, yeah. What, so what? They, they, they rarely go for less than 50 euros if it's a original release. Hmm. That's too bad. I guess the game has a real fan base and then other people seem to sort of hate it. It's a, it's a divisive game. There's not a lot of people who are, you either love it or you hate it, it seems. Right. So then then what do you say to people who are intrigued and, and maybe want to check it out? I mean, could you recommend this sort of game or is it not that sort of game? I think... One of the one of the things that you might actually want to do is is that this is sort of a game that you want to get to know the era better, and you want to sort of maybe get th- there's a there's a bit of clunky acting, of course, because it's sort of stage acting. And hey, come on, they did it first, uh, <laughs> but it's it's more of an important milestone yeah. in in the history of gaming. <laughs> And as a game itself, it's, uh, I mean, you'd probably get better and more engaging, engaging gameplay almost everywhere else after this game. Right. 
it's a good first game if you want to try FMV games because all the other ones are more fun. <laughs> yeah. Most uh, of them, except maybe Phantasmagoria. I tried to pick that up twice and I, mm, I still haven't yeah. gotten very far in with it. No. But it, it might be something where you pick it up and you, you get like a uh, a walkthrough with you or a small yeah. guide and, and and you follow with that. And instead of solving the, the, uh, the puzzle uh, with... Uh, the knight's movements for 45 minutes sitting there clicking <laughs> clicking it and, and trying to figure it out and going back and forth with it it's it's much better to sort of like okay this puzzle you understand how to how to do it yeah okay you just look up the solution how it's done exactly and then you input the solution and then you get on with it and and then instead of say uh stumping yourself at what uh, hitting your head on a puzzle you actually just move forward and and figure yeah. that out or you just spend two hours at the microscope puzzle because it's fun actually in the end hmm. even though it's very difficult to win it's or almost impossible to win it's still fun right that's cool and the and the atmosphere is just really cool i mean yeah. to me that's the best part of this game when i just first launched it i was like oh yeah this is really unique and really yeah something special and something you don't see in a lot of games especially not older games i mean from this game on it went sort of yeah, as as the CD-ROM became more common, more and more games started to incorporate more atmospheric music and cutscenes and stuff. But yeah, this is a really early example, and I think it's just got a cool atmosphere and a cool yeah look to it all. So uh, yeah, if yeah. if you consider say Alone in the Dark that we played last year, and and you consider this game, I'd rather much look at this game mm, the- today than Alone in the Dark. Yeah, and the controls are better in this game <laughs> yeah. than in Alone in the Dark. So, okay, maybe uh, of that era, it's very representative. Uh, as the games are sort of going up against each other mm-hmm. uh, in the era, and that's where you notice that okay, in the era, Alone in the Dark was a better game. But as a modern gamer, I'd rather play The Seventh Guest right as a horror game uh, than. Uh, get into the, the difficulties that was alone in the dark in, in that time. Yeah, that's. I think that's a cool way to wrap this all up. I mean, in the end, it's just about that horror aesthetic. And, and you mentioned the um, the acting wasn't so good. Um, we played Command and Conquer, which is, uh, I think, two years newer. <laughs> and the acting, <laughs> acting didn't really improve. No, I'm not sure if there are any DOS games with good <laughs> yeah. acting, to be honest. Or, I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think even even today, no, there's lots acting. of bad acting in video games. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's the seventh guest. Um, we should talk a little bit about what's going on with the club, Florian. Oh, we should. And because it's early December when we're we're recording this, which which means that November is just over. The uh, we played Wipeout in that month. We we talked about it a little bit. Yeah, another game that I didn't. Didn't get to play a lot of so. Oh man! Uh, oh man! But it's, from it's now getting, on, it's getting better now. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I did play it a lot, and uh, I even uh, got some scores on our uh, uh, high score list. We made a, a scoreboard like we did with Grand Prix Circuit. So yeah, if you if you want to uh, show us how fast you can go around the track in Wipeout, you can go to dosgameclub.com and and add your uh, score to the to the list. So that's cool. And yeah, we'll talk about that game in the next podcast, right? So Right. And we're trying yeah. to catch up now. I mean, we're, exactly. we're a month behind with recording yeah. and releasing those podcasts. So we're going to do it double time and then be yeah. 
exactly. I'll, I'll help you with editing, which Thank probably you. means you will have more work <laughs> if I didn't. <laughs> but we, we, we'll try. Yeah, we'll be fine. Um, and in December, uh, we are playing Ultima 7, which yeah, is... Yeah, a game uh, actually have already put in some hours in that. There you go. So and me too. I'm, so... I'm back on track. Exactly. And it's a really, really cool RPG, I guess. Top-down perspective. Really weird perspective, but... Yeah, it's yeah. the crazy perspective. Yeah. You know, there's there's right in the beginning, you, you get to this stable and there's a horse. And I thought the horse was dead. <laughs> Because it was drawn in a very weird perspective. Exactly it, it, started walking, it started walking around. I was like, <laughs> what? It's like stuff is drawn from the side and it's shown from the top. And I think it's a three-quarter top down. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of these. It's is a that, very steep uh, angle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. But it's really cool. So, yeah, that's what we're, what we're playing in December. Um, now, we've actually already picked January's game, haven't we? Well, and February's uh, and March's game. What? Game, game we've, we've got the whole year mapped out. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in January, we will be playing... Drum roll. It is... Worms. Woo, worms. Well, this is actually one of the games that I, I remember from, from really back then. And I played tons of it. I, I think I actually only played a demo version. I think it had one one map oh, wow. and like uh, three quarters of the weapons huh. disabled. But I still played it for hours and hours. Yeah, it's still fun. I mean, even with the same map and just one weapon, it's still fun. This is just a crazy fun game. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. In February, we will be playing a bit of an obscure game, won't we? Yeah. Um, DOS Game Club member Voxel uh, suggested it, and it's called Nomad. It's uh, I, I feel it's a bit like Starflight, which we played quite a while ago. Yeah. Uh, like a trading space simulator, if I understand correctly. We will yeah. see how, how wrong we are. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a space, yeah, like you said flying through space game. But I think there's also a story. I don't know. I really have not heard of this game at all. So yeah, um, we, we will see. Yeah, we'll see. We hadn't heard about Starflight before either. That's I think true. you didn't either. No, and, yeah, definitely. Let's... Does it, uh, do you remember if it predates or postdates Wing Commander Privateer? I think it's earlier. Well, I think it's okay. Earlier. So, so this was this is probably something that Privateer was uh, based on Nomad. Then. Maybe. More. Yeah, maybe. And... Uh, just because you wanted it, uh, <sighs> we go, we're we're going to play Descent in March. Yes, I, I wanted it for quite a while. Yeah. It's, it, this is actually one of my very earliest PC gaming memories. Wow. Um, a distant uh, a relative of mine had it on his computer. And when I visited, I, I used to play this game. It was, was great. <laughs> I, I haven't played Descent a lot. And the few times I did, I always got lost in like 10 seconds. So Yeah, that, that tends to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't I, know I, whether I, you're I, up or down. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and then you get I, I never actually yeah. finished the game or <laughs> even finished half of it. But I, okay. I really remember playing this for, for tons of, of many, right. many hours. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's that's what's going on in the future. Um, if you like any of this DOS game stuff, uh, come hang out with us on dosgameclub.com where we have forums where you can talk about the games. You can also suggest games we should play in the future. And, and if you hang out on the forums with us, then maybe you get even get invited into the podcast and, and talk. Well, you can about also it. invite yourself, right? Yeah, of course, of course. But I mean, <laughs> just, I, I, I want people posting on the forums. For well, me, yeah, so. sorry. 
you can also chat with us on IRC. We have a channel called Toss Game Club on Afternet. Um, and if you are not an IRC person, you can use the chat box on our website, which is fixed again. So that's great. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, where we're also called Dos Game Club. And of course, finally, if you're listening to this in a podcasting app, then please uh, leave a review or, or just say something nice and then we'll be happy and, and read it. And other people might read it too and have the show suggested to them and then more people will find out about it. And that's... Well, but of course, yeah. the right way to listen is to just uh, subscribe to the RSS feed. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, exactly. Just... <laughs> Do whatever you want. Um, so, yeah, that's it for us, I think. And, uh, yeah, speak to you all soon in the future with the next DOS game. So, uh, thanks a lot. So, thanks a lot for, for joining. Thanks a lot for having me. <laughs> it's always fun to have you. Definitely. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. let's, uh, let's, let's play more DOS games. <laughs> that's my, uh, <laughs> that's what, that's what we have That's for. my ending. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, bye guys. Bye everyone. Bye. bye. Yeah.